0: Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. <laughs> B. F. F. T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth.
1: Well, aware that by the time I get to you at 3 o'clock on Monday, That you have already talked to your friends and family about the Super Bowl. About the performance of Patrick Mahomes. About the performance of the Philadelphia Eagles, the officials, the grass on the field in Arizona. Still, though, I want to tell you what I think about it. Will you humor me for a second? And will you tell me what you thought of the Super Bowl? What you made of Kansas City's late victory over the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday. How was your Super Bowl party? What was your experience like? What's the thing you left the game thinking about? I left the game thinking about officiating, which is never good for the league. That said, I'm not one of these people who buys the conspiracy theory and says, hey, you know, let's look at one play that happened in this game. And let's make this the story of the game. One call by an official, especially with the defensive back who admitted after the game, hey, you know, I did uh, I did hold on the play. But uh, I, uh, I, I I, was thinking, I left the game thinking more about the adjustments made by Andy Reid and the Kansas City Chiefs. I left the game thinking more about the fact that the Philadelphia Eagles in the first maybe 18, 19 minutes of this game Looked like they were possibly going to run away with the Super Bowl. Like they looked really good, but Andy Reid and the Chiefs dominated the second half, made the adjustments, and walked off winners. They, you know, they won the football game. I want your reaction to what you saw in the Super Bowl. What was it that you were thinking about uh, as uh, maybe uh, you know the the night? Uh, drifted away on Super Bowl Sunday night uh the sod the 800,000 dollar you know debacle that was the grass um obviously we we all saw kickers slipping and players slipping and defensive linemen failing to get traction i thought it benefited uh the Kansas City Chiefs more than the Eagles that the turf was soft because offensive players know where they're going defensive players don't and I think the defensive line for the Philadelphia Eagles was probably the unit that was hurt more by what uh, was happening with the grass. Uh, The officiating, I don't know. I mean, you can nitpick, and we have over the years. I just think the fact that the call was made so late is why people were talking about it. I think the Chiefs were going to get a field goal anyway, and it was debatable if the Eagles would have been able to go down the field and match that, but, you know, a hold in the first quarter should be called so should one in the second, third, and fourth. And if a hold is a hold, you got to call it if you're the official. Now, you may have issue with the consistency, but, again, we're talking about an isolated one or two calls in this game when the bigger story is the performance of the Eagles and the adjustment by the Kansas City Chiefs in this game. I think the the Chiefs were the deserving winner. I expected them to win this game. I think I was not surprised to see Patrick Mahomes Become uh, the player of the game. He's the best player on the field, either team. Uh, that was a really good game, really entertaining game. Nationally, though, uh, people talking about the sod, Pat McAfee on his show, talking about the grass at the stadium in Arizona. Joe Pompliano reads the Doppler of business.
2: Yes, That's uh, right. He tweets it. Well said. Uh, the NFL has spent two years preparing the grass for tonight's field at the Super Bowl. The grass was grown at a local sod farm in Phoenix. It was installed two weeks ago, and the field has been rolled out each morning for daily sunshine. Total cost, 800 grand. Now, when I saw 800 grand, I was like, oh, cool, every NFL team can do this thing. Yeah, sure. That's what I just learned. Simple. I just learned every, every NFL team can do this. 800 grand? That's like one veteran contract that you will cut Sure, no problem. Guaranteeing have to do it, and then being able to take the grass outside to take a walk, uh, yeah, to take a walk and get some sunshine. That's been happening at University of Phoenix Stadium, State Farm Stadium, Mm -hmm. everything like that since the beginning. It was terrible, though. So bad. It was grass field. Obviously, everybody loves that. They had a grass field in there before they brought in this new sod. But why was it so bad, I wonder? Why was it the worst turf of all time? I saw a lot of people switching cleats. I believe Jalen Hurts went from green uh, green Jays to black Mm Jays. They put in some studs in there and got his cleats a little bit more heavy duty. But even the guys with the big cleats were slipping Mm -hmm. all over the place. That took away from the game a little bit. It
1: it definitely took away from the game. It took away from uh, the defensive line of the Philadelphia The Eagles, I thought, more than anything. Uh, I I watched them struggle to get footing, struggle to rush the passer consistently. They just were not the force that I expected them to be in the game. That said, I thought it was a great game, and I thought we saw had some great moments in this game. And Andy Reid kind of walks away uh, as the the guy that um, ends up looking like the better coach in the game. He made the adjustments. Here we go. Hurts.
0: As all day, now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far
1: as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. In the books, the Chiefs are the winners. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. What is it that you were thinking about? In the wake of the game, what did you wake up thinking about? What's the first thing that you told your friends when you debated the game and how good a game it was? Steven back in studio. Was this a good game? 503 417 is the number. Steven, was this a good Super Bowl?
3: Uh, definitely a good Super Bowl. Uh, I thought it was a very entertaining game. It was a very clean game, too. Uh, for the one penalty they called at the end of the game, I believe there was five penalties called throughout the game. Very clean game by both teams. My initial reaction right after the game was I was already annoyed with, you know, people complaining about the referee on that call, I thought it was clearly a hold. Like, you saw the jersey being pulled, and I know people argue it was uncatchable, but the reason it's so uncatchable is because he was held. Like, you, it's a different. That's not pass interference. It was holding. It should have been called even in that situation because if you don't call it in that situation and you say, well, we're going to let the players play it out, at what point do you just don't call penalties then at the end of games, right? Like, can you just tackle anybody on every play, just make, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a bad it's a bad line to precedent to set if you don't call that a penalty at the end of the game when it was a clear penalty in my mind. I know it you know, it ruined the end of the game, the drama, but it was the right call in my mind. So I you know, when Greg Olson brought it up on the broadcast, who I thought was great. I thought Burkhart and Olsen were great on the call, but Olson brought it up like, Oh, you can't call that at the end of the game. I'm thinking yeah, but you can. It was a it was a penalty. Like you gotta call that. Um but overall, John, I thought it was a very uh entertaining game. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, I think he's proven to be the best player in the NFL, and he is on the verge of, I don't dare I say it now, but I mean, 27 years old, he may be the best quarterback of all time, when it's all said and done. He's, he's on that type of level right now.
1: Yeah, he's on that trajectory. Look, it's a hold in week one. It's a hold in week eight. It's a hold in the Super Bowl. Nobody likes to see it go that way, but you got to call it if you're the official. And I still think Kansas City, I mean, even if that's not called, they go on to kick the field goal and probably win the game anyway. Mark's in Portland. Mark, what was your takeaway?
4: Uh, first of all, that's the same venue that Oregon played Auburn in 2011 in the same situation where, I mean, it's basically indoor stadium and th- the field was wet. And, you know, we th- that was a speed situation for Oregon. So why is – that's a big question. That's almost criminal. But uh, I thought the game came down to two plays, John, and it's – uh, turnovers uh, and the the uh, long punt return to the five yard line uh, that set him up for another touchdown. That's two touchdowns right there. And it looked like Philly was taking control of the game when uh, uh, Jalen Hurts had had uh, 304 yards passing, 70 yards rushing, and four touchdowns. So except for that play, he outplayed Mahomes. But that play was crucial. Yeah, and that that usually determines Super Bowls, especially when they're close. The Special teams basically touchdown, set up first and goal, and the turnover for a touchdown. You're not going to win Super Bowls with with those kind of things.
1: Yeah, and get this, Mark. Uh, I threw a, uh, you know, I saw that uh, two defensive slash special team scores in the same game got you 85 to one odds. I threw a buck on that, and you better believe when the. Uh, when the Chiefs punt returner was running to the towards the goal line, I was going, "Keep going! Oh my keep God, going!" You were too. <laughs> yeah. I I did something yesterday
4: in the Super Bowl. I have watched all these games. This was one of the best Super Bowls ever. But I missed every single prop bet I bet. Everything, everything went the opposite direction. <laughs> they scored in six minutes. Uh, the, they had a play over forty-two yards for a touchdown. Everything I picked, I even got. Travis Kelsey late and he needed 82 and a half yards and he got 81. So I missed everything.
1: You know what you but needed I still to do? Had You,
3: fun.
4: you <laughs> needed
1: to do the George Costanza, the opposite. Well, here's your chance to try the
3: opposite. Instead of tuna salad <laughs> and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to him.
5: Yeah, I should do the opposite. I should.
3: If every instinct you have is wrong,
4: then the opposite would have to be right.
5: <laughs> yes. I will do the opposite. I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day. So now I will do the opposite and I will
1: do something. <laughs> George would have went undefeated in his prop bets yesterday. Look, I thought it was a good Super Bowl. I'm not surprised the Eagles fans are not calling in today, even though they said they would. It was a disappointing finish to the season for Philadelphia. I thought they played well. And and look, I think that you play that game, ten, you play that Super Bowl ten times, I think Kansas City probably wins six of them, and Philadelphia wins four. I mean, I I thought it was a really evenly matched game. It was really reflective of what we see in the NFL. I thought the turf was disappointing. I didn't mind the officiating. I just mind that it becomes a story, and I'm always reluctant to kind of make it the story when we come into this show on a Monday because, look, uh, while it's disappointing that we're talking about the officiating, I thought the officials did a pretty good job during the game of not getting whistle happy, I thought in the AFC title game they were uh, they were a lot more ticky tack. But you know, in the end, it's sports, right? Uh, coming up, the Pac-12 has done something peculiar today. I got to talk about that. Plus, uh, we'll get a visit from John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, and we'll talk about the Warriors Blazers trade. It has gone through, but not without drama. Leave it here.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game.
1: I got to be honest, like, you know, if we're really, you know, they give away an MVP trophy after the game. They hold a news conference. There's Patrick Mahomes today to accept his award and talk to media. But I thought the biggest factor in the game and I think a lot of you thought this as well was frankly Andy Reid's coaching I just thought Kansas City adjusted it was evident in the second half that the Chiefs made the adjustments and that the Eagles did not find uh, an answer for that like I thought the early part of the game it was belonged to the Eagles and I looked up at you know, kind of the end of the first quarter, the end of the second quarter. And I was like, gosh, if Kansas City doesn't figure something out in the second half, this thing could get away from them. But they did figure something out, and they were able to put it back together. I think it was fun to kind of watch that adjustment. I'm always looking at that, especially in college football. Because I think, it's, I think in the NFL, we do sometimes see smaller variances when it comes to adjustment. Uh, because I think the athletes are so good in the NFL. That sometimes the adjustment that is made isn't as notable, but I was in this Super Bowl game. It was, and I I noted, you know, this last couple of years in watching Mario Cristobal at Oregon, that you know he wasn't a great third quarter adjustment guy. Jonathan Smith at Oregon State is very good in the second half. His staff is very good. Kyle Whittingham at Utah very good in the second half, but I thought. You know, uh, it'll be interesting to see Dan Lanning next year because I wasn't blown away by the second-half adjustments that Oregon made this year either, and I thought the games that they lost, particularly Oregon State, were all due to, uh, you know, those games were all affected by coaching down the stretch, and I thought it was really interesting. The one that surprised me is that Utah didn't get Oregon in the second half of their game at Autzen Stadium. That one was curious to me because it felt to me like Utah figured something out uh, at about halftime, and Oregon was not as effective uh, against Utah in the second half. Clearly, Utah figured out that uh, Oregon couldn't, you know, couldn't really do anything with the quarterback mobility situation they had. But I'm always looking at that kind of stuff, so I felt like Andy Reid's adjustment and the Chiefs' second half was a thing of beauty. Just watching a team basically go, hey, we're going to tweak a few things and all of a sudden they're just more effective on both sides of the ball. Fun to watch, uh, put the Super Bowl in the books. The odds for the next Super Bowl are already out. You will not be surprised that the sports books have just taken pretty much the order of finish from last year and, uh, you know, instilled or installed the Chiefs and the Eagles as the favorite and the second favorite right behind them Buffalo and San Francisco and some others and no no big surprises on that front but it's never too early to start talking about football look look here we are damn near Valentine's Day just putting an NFL season to rest and there was some talk yesterday about why the Super Bowl has to be held on a Sunday I'm a purist I like it there I kind of think it would be fun to see Monday be a national holiday, aside from sports radio, because I think people go into their Monday a little sluggish. But would you support a move to a Saturday Super Bowl, Stephen? I'm not against it. I don't. I don't I'm, with, I'm like you.
3: I do like that it's Super Bowl Sunday. I do like the traditionalist of it. Um, and I'm not even that much of a purist type of person, but I do like it just being Super Bowl Sunday. Like it does seem like it's a little bigger, right? I think Sat. You know. Sunday, we're so programmed for the NFL fan, like, Sunday is, like, the day, right? Like, all Sunday season, it's we know there's football going on. So I kind of, like, do like it that is on Sunday. I don't have a problem if they moved it to Saturday because, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. Like, I'm not going to get, like, totally crazy and uh, gone at, during the game so I can't work or anything. Um, so I don't have a problem with it either way.
1: I, I don't like 68 teams in the NCAA tournament. In fact, in my mind, the tournament does not start until the playing games are over. And, I, and then I go, okay, we got our normal bracket. Okay, now we can start this tournament. But I don't like the playing in games. But do you like
3: the college football playoff then? Or I, no. they, when they open it up to more There's teams. not
1: enough history, though, because we, it wasn't that long ago. Like, I grew up, my childhood, there wasn't a title game. It was the AP poll, and we had to wait for the voters in the AP poll to declare the national champion, or it would be a split national champion, the AP poll and the UPI poll. And then came BCS, which... Gave us the illusion of a real championship, but we all knew down deep when we saw teams like Oregon get hosed and not allowed into the BCS title game that it wasn't a real title game. Hell, I watched Miami play Nebraska in in what was a, air quotes, national championship game that nobody thought Nebraska belonged in. And then came the playoff. It was better, but still imperfect with four teams. So I don't think from a – even the purist in me is going – I, you know, I've been through so many changes in my lifetime and watching this, like going to 12 teams, I'm good with it because it feels like it's getting closer to a real playoff tournament with automatic qualifiers from the conference champions. So I'm OK with that. But I, I like my NCAA tournament bracket with 64 teams in it. I like my Super Bowl on a Sunday. I like my college football on a Saturday. And I like my high school football on a Friday night. And I don't like when, you know, there's a Thursday night or a Friday night game in the Pac-12. And I go, this is not where this game should be. And I don't like when they play like a, a day game in a high school football or they play a Thursday or they move it to a Saturday. No, that's Friday night under the lights. So, you know, the snack bars open. Somebody's, uh, you know... Teachers at the front gate collecting tickets. You know, like that's that's high school football to me. That's the purest in me. We haven't heard from Peter Sampson on the Super Bowl. Your takeaways, Peter.
5: Yeah, I mean, it was a great game, I, and I think the, the better team did win in the end. I, I picked the Eagles. I didn't feel great about it, but I was feeling pretty good about my pick in the first half. And, man, can we just shout out... Jalen Hurts, I mean, maybe that Philly, that vaunted so-called Philly defense didn't show up in the second half, didn't really pressure Mahomes too much. But Jalen Hurts did everything he was supposed to do, didn't he? But you have to give credit to uh, Kansas City for just playing an absolute masterclass of a second half. And um, regarding the holding penalty, I mean, it was a hold. I guess you hate it in that situation. But ultimately, I don't know why anyone's up in arms. Pretty much every NFL game that matters has a penalty in that situation. So we can all argue about it. This is no different. They would have cooked a field goal anyway. Great Super Bowl.
1: I thought it was fun. It was entertaining. And I thought it was interesting, which is what I was looking for in that game. Let's go to Mike in Portland who has called in. Mike, what's on your mind?
6: Say, so John, first of all, man, um, historical
7: uh, significance of this game outweighs the other aspects of it in that the NFL is 103 years old, and this is the first time two black quarterbacks met in the Super Bowl. That's significant. Also, I want to point out that I think that there were some shady things going on with officiating for the simple reason that Patrick Mahomes has had been named MVP, and nobody wanted to look ridiculous at that point. So. I think there were some shenanigans going on to fix it so he could end up uh, winning the Super Bowl. Because I think the other quarterback definitely outplayed him. He looked much more poised. So I just wanted to throw that out to you. Talk to you later. Yeah,
1: I just don't – I think historically, look, I've been there, uh, you know, I've been there for nine Super Bowls in the press box. And not everybody gets a vote in that scenario for MVP – and often the votes are tallied with four minutes to go in the game, and then you get a whole bunch of people who are holding on to the end going, hey, I'm not pick. I'm not going to vote until I see who wins it. I know for, like, the Pac-12 championship game and other uh, bowl games that I've been to, when they go to name the most outstanding player or the MVP of the game, they will ask you to pick a player from each team, uh, and they'll put in parentheses, hey, the award will go to the player who's on the winning team. So I think if the Eagles win that game, Jalen Hurts is the MVP. And I think if the you know, Chiefs win the game, it's Patrick Mahomes. It's kind of become what the award is. But speaking of conspiracy theories, Stephen got in my ear during the commercial break. I don't know why you don't want to bring this up on air, Stephen. Oh, I do, yeah. But let's talk about your conspiracy theory. And I want listeners to give us their conspiracy theory on this Super Bowl if you've got one. At 503-417-7575. Mike in Portland just raised his conspiracy theory. He believes that they wanted Patrick Mahomes as the MVP. What is yours, Stephen? Yeah, so uh, mine has to do with the, the
3: grass and the sod of the Super Bowl. Now, was, there's was a lot being made that it was $800,000. They spent a lot of money on it. And then everyone was slipping, right? Right the big story throughout the nfl season a lot of it was referees but a lot of it was the players want to go to natural grass they don't like playing on the field turf so i feel like maybe the nfl put my conspiracy hat on here did they did they make it so the grass the sod was a little slippery to try to go away from the players wanting natural grass rather than field mm. turf which is a lot easier i think for uh to you know maintain and do all that kind of stuff with probably a lot cheaper to do um, you know not saying that it that, that's going to happen but it is weird that on the biggest stage and the biggest game of everyone's watching, everyone's slipping. Like why it should be the best grass you ever had where nobody's slipping. There should be no problems, but it was a problem the entire game as we saw.
1: Yeah. And the NFL, it, so you're basically saying that there's been all this talk all year long about player safety and the knee injuries that we've seen on artificial surface for years. And especially this season, a couple stadiums have some bad playing surfaces and, You've heard players complain about it. So in this year, the Super Bowl is going to be played with grass that they grow, and they've been growing for two years, and it's going to solve this problem. You're basically saying there's no way the rest of the teams in the league are going to want to spend $800,000 to grow grass that they have to import. Therefore, uh, let's uh, put this slippery grass out there and – Tell the world that, hey, be happy with the playing service you've had.
3: No, I was talking to my wife about this, Uh, you know, track coach. She said that when she was looking at the grass, there it seemed like there's no foundation. So it was basically just like running on, like, cement almost. Like, so you are bound to slip because there was no, like, dirt. It was basically just grass is what it looked like. So I don't know. I You know, maybe her eye knows more than mine. Maybe it was a real thing. I just – I saw it, and I thought, you know what, that's not a terrible theory because the NFL – i you know, I think they would do something like that, like just to kind of prove that they're right and their players are wrong. Like they're the big bad guy. Roger Goodell's already, already heel. Like
1: it wouldn't be surprising to me, John, if this was true. Let's go to the phone lines. Tell me about your conspiracy theory or what you were thinking about in the wake of the Super Bowl. Sean in Vancouver. Sean, go ahead.
6: Hey, John. Hope you're doing well. So
7: what I was going to say is, in my mind, that was one of the best Super Bowls in recent history because of the coaching. Andy Reid put on a clinic about how it was supposed to be done, especially with time management at the end of the game. Like, you know, people complained, oh, it was so boring at the end, they just ran. Yeah, if you're playing for the World Championship, what are you going to do? Try to give it back to that prolific offense? Or run the clock down and and narrow the odds further and further with every second? It was amazing to watch, and it's how it should be done. By the way, everybody plays on the same grass, so so what? It was bad. Everybody has bad footing.
1: Yeah, I get that. Look, like, it reminded me of uh, some Thanksgiving Turkey Bowl games we had when I was kids. You're in tennis shoes. You're on a muddy field. You're slip-sliding around. It wasn't quite that bad. But, you know, you just see there were players who were having issues. They were changing cleats. They were going to different – they were trying different things to get footing. Um, still, I you know, both, both teams playing on the same turf. Um, both teams had to deal with the turf. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750, The Game.
1: You ever have a friend or somebody who offers unsolicited to you? And tells you how great things are going for them. Just unsolicited, hey, you know, things are going really well. Uh, And, you know, whatever front that may be. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in their home life. uh, You know, maybe, uh, you know, but they offer it unsolicited. It always kind of raises an eyebrow, like, why are you telling me that? I didn't ask you about that. I didn't ask you how things are going. Why are you offering that up? The PAC-12 conference did that today. It issued a statement this afternoon that was weird. The conference statement, I'm going to read it here for you. The statement that they offered today was um, essentially a PR move, but here it is. I'm just going to read it, I'm going to try to read it without editorializing, give it to you straight. The Pac-12, the 10 Pac-12 universities look forward to consummating successful media rights deals in the very near future. Based upon positive conversations with multiple potential media rights partners over the past weeks, we remain highly confident in our future growth and success as a conference and united in our commitment to one another. End of statement. Now, it's a curious punch from the conference and I'm in I'm told by a source in the Pac 12 that it's designed to combat some of the criticism and uncertainty that has come out in the last week. Variety of media outlets both respected and not respected have raised, you know, oh, the four corners schools might be leaving or oh, there's some frustration with the deal and you know there's some uh, members who are not happy and not not on board with the conference. Um it's a weird thing to say, unsolicited. It's a weird statement. Uh, they want you to know they're not just confident about their future growth. They're highly confident. They're not just having conversations. They're having positive conversations. They're not just negotiating. They're united while negotiating. Yeah, now, look, the quickest way to combat negative PR is to simply sign a deal and prove that the 10 remaining members are unified. And I do believe that the 10 remaining members are unified. I do believe that. I don't think the four-corner schools are going anywhere. I don't think Oregon and Washington are going anywhere. I don't think Oregon State and Washington State are plotting to leave and go anywhere. Like, I think the 10 schools are together and committed. But even if you believe what the Pac-12 just put out, it's still weird to say it. It's like a friend meeting you for coffee and going, you know, everything's great at home for me. And you're like, we just sat down. What do you What do you mean? Everything, is something wrong? Like that's where my mind goes immediately. It feels, uh, it feels like the conference is really a little bit insecure and self conscious about what's being said about it. And look, I've criticized Commissioner George Klyovkov roundly for his handling of of the USC UCLA defection the fact that he kinda went radio silent between July and December while there was a lot of noise out there I don't think it was the right move but it's weird to me that the conference decided in July to issue a joint statement saying hey this is where we stand and then they come back in, you know, February with another joint statement saying, you know, we're galvanized and whatnot. In between, uh, USC and UCLA have signed a meteorite deal with the Big Ten. They're going to leave. George Kleofkoff, the commissioner, has popped up a, at an SMU home basketball game, presumably to explore expansion. And you have some weird things that are going on, and you've been quiet to this point. So... I get it. Like the Athletic wrote a piece and they said, you know, one source says that there's some unrest or there's some frustration with the conference. Uh, It made it sound like they're wavering. Now, I'm not in that camp. I don't have sources at the Pac-12 that are telling me that everybody I'm talking with is telling me that I should invest my energy elsewhere. Don't focus too much on trying to get statements saying everybody's galvanized because everybody's galvanized. And to me, that's the stronger statement is when I go and I ask one of the four corners universities, hey, can you give me a statement on where you stand? I saw some things reported and the 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 refrain I get back is invest your energy elsewhere. Like they're just tired of talking about it. There's nothing to it. Now I think there's some questions for the Pac-12. The, the Pac-12's got to decide what it wants to be: ten-team conference, twelve teams, fourteen teams. Will it, uh, you know, will it grab SMU in San Diego State? Will it grab a school in Louisiana? Is Tulane, you know, out there for it? Or does that make the Pac-12 look small-time if it takes SMU, San Diego State, UNLV, and somebody else like? You know, I think the Pac-12 is going to expand by two members. I don't think Oregon or Washington are going anywhere. I don't think the four corner schools are going anywhere. But I think that this news release, this statement that the Pac-12 has made is weird. It's just a weird thing to put out if you're not at all in any kind of jeopardy. And so it looks small-time to me. And, like, you know, I... I grew up in the Pac-12 footprint. I grew up watching, following, rooting for teams in the Pac-12 conference. And I still look at the Pac-12 and feel like I know it. I, I see 10 of the, the 12 members that were there just a couple, you know, a year ago or whatnot. I'm disappointed with UCLA and USC leaving. I think it hurts the conference. It hurts the tradition of the conference. I'm not at all sold that. USC and UCLA really wants to leave, like, you know, if the money were anywhere near what they're getting in the Big Ten, I think they would stay. I think they recognize that this is a financial move 100% all the way. They're chasing money. They're trying to solve their financial problems in the Midwest. Cool. Go do that. But I'm left looking at this conference going, hey, you need to act like you're big time. Like, don't right now, for the sake of of uh, trying to look uh, like you're unified. You don't need to say you're unified. It's almost like when an athletic director gives a vote of confidence to a coach who's struggling. Like, you know that coach is toast. So I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the academics because that's really what we're dealing with here. We've got ten chancellors and presidents at universities. They're different cats. I've talked to uh, about seven of the ten chancellors and presidents that are currently in position, at least in a hello, how are you, nice to meet you fashion, um, they're different. They're These are not, I don't want to say they're not normal because I think that comes off as disparaging. They're just not, they're not accustomed to the world that the rest of us live in. They live in this world of academia and they live in this world of consensus decision making. And they live in this world where the sports entities, the athletic department, used to be like the toy factory of the campus. Oh, that's fun. I go there on game days. I check it out. And in the last decade or 15 years, those toy factories have begun to print money in a way where they're no longer reliant upon the general fund. They are now viewed as a asset to the university they can help with enrollment they can help with the branding of the school they can help generate millions of dollars and opportunities for students on campuses and like the suddenly the academics are going hey that side hustle that we had that football team that basketball team it's now starting to make a lot of money like like that might be one of our primary revenue streams in a lot of campuses it is but I don't think you can sit around and act the way the Pac-12 acted today and be expected to be taken seriously. Like, it was a small-time statement. It was weird, self-conscious. It's like, you know, you ever see somebody and you know they're just not comfortable in their shoes? The Pac-12 did not look comfortable in its shoes today. Coming up, uh, we're going to play some Punch it audio in our big splash. Leave it right here.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: I hope you're ready for Valentine's Day. And That's all I'm saying, just a reminder. Think about all the Valentines in your life. Your kids, your wife, your girlfriend, your significant other. Whoever that person is, your mom, remember your mom on Valentine's Day. Grandma, you got a grandma in your life? I miss my grandmothers. I got, uh, I had the blessing of knowing them for a long time, which was cool. Because I was like in my 30s and still had my grandparents alive, which was amazing. Because you know them, you have a relationship with them as a kid. And then you get to know them more when you become an adult and you have different conversations with them about their lives and what they've learned. Uh, Remarkable. And I think about a lot of grandmas and grandpas who are sitting out there uh, who are, many of them, listen to this show. Uh, Shout out to you guys. Uh, Much respect for people who have lived longer than I have. It takes us to Punch It Audio, the best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the bald Fish
5: Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey,
0: it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
1: Everybody talking about that holding call at the end of the game. Here's how it sounded. Chiefs on offense, Eagles on defense, ball in the air. Mahomes, pressure,
0: lofting one, end zone incomplete. Juju Smith-Schuster couldn't catch up. There's a flag at the 10. Hang on, there's a penalty. Fire to the pass, holding,
8: number 24, defense, five-yard penalty,
0: automatic. Worst case scenario, you'll see James Bradbury, they're going to say he grabs him. He's got his left hand on his back. I don't know, Mike, listen. I think on this stage, I, I think you let him play. Obviously, Mahomes thought he saw it.
1: Yep, Mahomes thought he saw it. So did the official. It was flagged. But let's make no mistake, the Chiefs made the plays at the end of this game, including Patrick Mahomes on a 25-yard run, punching. Mahomes
0: in trouble, gets away.
1: Mahomes racing with the bad ankle and all. Inside the 20, he's taken down. Somehow, Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes threw for 182 yards, modest by his standards. You look at his season, that was a season low in passing yards for Patrick Mahomes. But he completed almost 78% of his passes, which was a season high. He also had three touchdowns and no interceptions. And then he made a play like that. That, To me... That was the backbreaker. That twenty-five yard run at the end of the game. Andy Reid talking about his motivation and getting his team ready to play.
6: Punch it. Yeah. Listen, we were right there. I don't have to motivate these guys too much. They're they're uh, they're, they're very motivated uh, to do well. And we were down by ten points, so it's not that it's not that much um, with the way our defense plays and shutting people down and and the way our offense plays by scoring points. So it's just a matter of straightening out a couple things. And um, the guys always believe. They never don't believe. Um, They always think they're in the game.
1: Always thought they were in the game. Great performance, great closing performance by Kansas City. Troy Aikman, he gave game ball to Kansas City's offensive line today on the Dan Patrick Show. Here's Aikman punching.
8: Looking at the game, Dan, the thing that I was most impressed with sitting there watching it was just how good Kansas City's offensive line was. I, I just didn't feel like at any point. Now, there were some times, you know, Mahomes had to move around. and But that's that's every week, every quarterback. But I thought for a vaunted pass rush like, like Philadelphia had to not come away with a sack and really not impact that game, I, I thought that was the real key uh, in the Chiefs being able to win the game. Yeah, look, a part of it, though, was the turf. Kansas City's
1: offensive line was good, but I thought the turf neutralized the pass rush by the Philadelphia Eagles more than any other unit on the field. Andy Reid was asked after the game, is he going to retire? Punch it.
6: Yeah, listen, I, mean, I, I I look in the mirror and I'm old. Um, I, my, my heart, though, is young. I mean, I still enjoy doing what I'm doing. I got asked that 50 times here, and finally I just go, whatever, man. You know, whatever. And that's a, that's a good friend. Jay Glazer's a good friend. So, I mean, he, he's probably telling me to get my tail out. I'm too old. But um, I, I'm good with what I'm doing right now. So
1: Yeah, Andy Reid, happy punching that decision. By the way, Dean Blandino on the Dan Patrick Show talked about uh, the officiating. Is it a holding penalty? Would he have thrown the flag? Punch it. I, to me, it's, it's hard to sit there and watch James Bradbury
3: grab the jersey and say that's not a foul. I mean, there's no way I can sit here and say it's not a foul
1: for holding. And uh, and if it's a foul in the first quarter, it has to be a foul in the fourth quarter. You want to be consistent. You don't want your officials to be officiating the the
7: the situation. They have to they have to compartmentalize and say, okay, I'm going to officiate this play.
3: And if there's a foul, I have to call it. But again, I think we we just we all felt, myself included as a fan, is. If I'm wondering if he doesn't throw the flag in that situation, are we even talking about that play? It's one of probably not. But when you watch the replay and you see the jersey grab, that by rule is a foul.
1: Yeah, Dean Blandino getting it right. Also, you know, as interesting as James Bradbury, the player who was called for defensive holding in the post game, said, "Yeah, it was holding." Punch it.
8: I mean, that's not up for my judgment. You know, I, I was hoping he would let it go, but of course, you know, he's a ref. It's a big game, um, and it was—it was a hold,
1: so they called it. It was a hold. They called it again. So many other plays that happened in this game. Tough for me to look at uh, that and say that was the reason. Bob Myers, general manager of the Warriors, he was involved. In what can best be described as a fiasco a trade that turned into a fiasco Warriors gave Gary Payton the second a physical he failed the physical it's since come out that Gary Payton the second rather Gary Payton the second GP2 uh, was taking oral Toradol as part of I guess his recovery or was needed to get him back on the court here's bob myers talking about gp2
5: gary's going to be out uh, from our standpoint uh, we're, we're going to evaluate him in a month and um see where he's at uh, but it was our deter- it is our determination he's not ready to play right now uh, but when we get him back hopefully we do get him back at some point uh, the goal would be pre-playoffs that would be the hope but uh, until we uh, get a sense of how the rehab process is going i, I can't really speculate
1: Look, this I said on Friday, this is going to be messy. It's already messy. But the fact is Gary Payton II is not healthy right now and he's not currently able to play. They're going to reevaluate him in a month. It looks like the Blazers were publicly pressuring him to get out onto the court saying that he had been cleared medically, apparently giving him painkillers so when he went out and played and he didn't feel good, he could he could uh, you know, recover or or not be in pain, this is messy, and I I fear that the NBA is going to come in and slap the Blazers with a punishment, a fine, a loss of a draft pick, something, uh, because uh, I am awfully curious to know what the league requires them to tell the Warriors, what they did tell the Warriors. I don't think that the Warriors are the bad guy in this thing. I think they're doing their diligence. I think if the if the roles were reversed and Blazer fans were looking at this same trade, they'd be furious with uh, with saying, "Hey, uh, you know what was disclosed, what wasn't disclosed." But the bottom line is, it is at least an inconvenience to the Warriors, and at most, it is there was an ethical breach by the Blazers. We don't know which yet. And I'm going to reserve judgment until I hear more from the NBA because you know they're looking into this. In the Pac-12 over the weekend, Oregon had an opportunity. Big one. Hosting UCLA at home on Saturday. UCLA came up big. punching. He just plays so hard. Everybody plays hard if they're any good at right. all. He's
3: got ha- ten rebounds tonight. Hawkins plays smart. A three for Hawkins. He's
0: up to 18 points and ten rebounds. He has taken over this
1: game. UCLA beat Oregon 70-63. to Jaime Jaquez hit a big three there. Uh, I thought Oregon would give UCLA more problems in this game. It was a weird Pac-12 weekend. A lot of cannibalization going on. Oregon State beating USC? What? Good win for Wayne Tinkle and the Beavers. But, man, this is a conference that's trying to get three or four teams into the NCAA tournament, and it's like they have two in Arizona and UCLA they keep going, who else wants to be here? Who and then, else wants to go? Stanford beating Arizona? Another, you know,
3: yes. craziness. It's
1: nuts. What's going on with this conference? That's Punch It Audio. It's the best sound from all around. We're going to get a visit from John Wilner. We'll talk more about the Pac-12 football and basketball landscape. We'll deal more with this Blazers-Warriors trade. Is it okay to not declare a bad guy in this trade until we know more? I think we need to, we need to know more. Blazers are insisting that they would not have played GP2 if he wasn't cleared. But that doesn't answer my question for the Blazers. My question for the Blazers is, did they pressure him to get back on the court? Did they urge him? Did they entice him? Did they push him to take Toradol and get back out on the court and prove he can play because they wanted to trade him? And my question for the Warriors is, you know, how much of this is them just posturing at this point? Leave it here.
0: B.F.F.T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth.
1: Basketball, men's basketball in particular. Doing what the Pac-12 does sometimes, cannibalizing itself. UCLA and Arizona look like they're going to get in. Utah, USC, Arizona State, Oregon, anybody else want to go to the NCAA tournament? If so, start winning games consistently. We'll talk about that, plus the looming college football season. It's always looming. We'll talk about it with John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News my co-host on the Kanzano and Wilner podcast he is uh, joining us now live via satellite from his lair in the bay area how you doing man
7: i am good thanks how are you
1: i'm well uh let's look at the basketball standings real quick okay it's ucla it's arizona uh is is the pac12 going to get a third team in i think they are but i just don't know who it is
7: Certainly Oregon and USC, I think, have the inside tr- Um I, I think that, like, you know, better than 50-50 chance that they get a third team in, you know, probably like 60-65% chance. But one of those schools is either going to have to win the coverage tournament or win a bunch of games down the stretch, right? You can't, I mean, USC, that was a bad loss to Oregon State at this time of year, really bad. Uh, Oregon has had some bad losses itself, the loss of Stanford recently. So, so we have to earn it, but it just feels to me like there's going to be a, a third. I don't think there'll be four unless there's an upset in the conference tournament like we had a couple years ago with Oregon State.
1: Give me an idea, you know, what you think is going on. There's been a clear investment in football in recent years, and it looks like it paid off. Will the conference now turn to the athletic directors and the presidents and say, "Hey, it's time to invest invest in men's basketball"?
7: Yeah, I think that you know football is the priority, right? And if you don't have football working, it's hard to devote the energy and the resources to to basketball. But when you look at the state of play in football, almost every school probably is feeling pretty good about their situation right now. Uh, other than maybe in the Bay Area. So there certainly seems to be now the opportunity to, to pivot and focus on basketball. I've been some bad basketball hires on the coaching level in the last four or five years, and I think that we're going to see a bunch of changes this spring. I just think it's, it's inevitable at this point. You can't keep trotting out a substandard product, and uh, a bunch of schools that have got football figured out now, like Washington comes to mind, right? They're on the right trajectory with football. They can now take a real hard look to see if they need to make a change in men's basketball.
1: John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News, at Wilner Hotline on Twitter. Wilner, let me ask you, just from a basketball standpoint, we've been talking about expansion of the conference, SMU, San Diego State, UNLV. I could go on and on. Uh, Gonzaga has come up at different points. Does it make sense in your mind – to add a basketball-only member, or is the money just not there for men's basketball in Gonzaga?
7: Well, from what I saw over the weekend, I think they should add Portland State. That was something else. <laughs> um, that, that was, I've never seen a shot like that. Uh, you know, I think Gonzaga, one, if Gonzaga's if coming, my guess is it, it, would, it, it would be in all sports. Uh, and two... Gonzaga would have to come in at a greatly reduced share. Let's just say, you know, round numbers to make this, Let's say the Pac-12 uh, signs a media deal and every school gets $30 million. I and mean, they're not going to give Gonzaga $30 million, right? Gonzaga would have to be willing to come in at, I don't know, $8 million, $10 million. And then you have to decide, okay, if is getting $10 million, are they increasing the value of the conference by at least that much? Otherwise, they're, they, they're going to deplete the the overall cash flow, and I don't know. Uh, I think it's a close call. You know, you could argue having Gonzaga to, to, helps replace UCLA and to get in terms of getting the brand, but I just don't know. Given that Pac-12 has already got the Washington media market, I just am not sure that the Zags are a, a revenue additive.
1: Wilner, you took a look at some of the potential football Additions via expansion. You kind of did a capsule on their academic profile, you know their enrollment, you know the uh, uh, the particulars of the media market and and such. Uh, in your mind, who are your top three candidates when it comes to expansion of the Pac-12? Well,
7: the first two I think are easy. SMU and uh, San Diego State to me make a lot of sense. I mean, they're not perfect, right? The Pac-12 is dealing with an imperfect hand, and it's just got to make the most of it. We those to bring some, each bring something to the table. If you're looking at number three, you know, to me, maybe uh, you make the case for UALV uh, or Fresno State. I'm not sure about Boise. Although one interesting thought would be to take Gonzaga in all sports and then Boise in football only. And basically you're adding Gonzaga basketball and- Boise football, and you're trying to create a full, you know, power five level uh, school there from those two. Or if you if they're talking about, and I don't think this will happen, you know, adding four, and then you want to add a pair, a, a pairing from SMU in Texas. Then you have to probably think about Rice. You know, you got the Houston market; it's obviously an elite academic school. But my guess is they'll end up just adding two if they add any.
1: Yeah, I I keep thinking about, you know, the process here with media rights expansion. Pac-12 comes out with a statement today. It was puzzling. It was a little curious when I saw this. But the statement today essentially said, hey, we're unified, we're galvanized. This is, of course, uh, a reaction to the athletic story that came out last week that was less than upbeat and maybe some others some other uh, outlets that are, uh, you know, perpetually predicting the demise of the conference. But what did you make of that today? I got to know your reaction when you saw it.
7: Well, you know, certainly it's not it's not a usual thing. But then again, it's been seven months, and the presidents haven't issued a statement uh, in, since early July. And there's been some negative coverage and... I think there's a little bit of growing concern within the factual footprint about whether they're going to be able to make this thing work and, and get a media deal and stick together. Uh, then you add in the fact that the Big 12 reached an exit agreement with Texas and Oklahoma and is getting $100 million for that. And there's some speculation, over oh, why well, use that money to try to add 12 kind of, schools? So I think it was just kind of them saying, reminding everyone, hey, we're, we're together, and I think part of it is it was a statement directed at their potential media partners, whether it's ESPN or Amazon or whoever, just saying, you know, we are publicly stating we are together, so you should not be worried about cutting a deal with us and, and having having the conference break apart immediately after.
1: This uh, timeline now, in your mind with the statement today, does that extend the timeline for when you expect an agreement or a deal or an announcement or – do you think that those two things just have no correlation? Like, you know, hey, they're just they're updating us and could be any time.
7: I, I think that it's going to happen by March 15th, you know, the middle of March. If they don't either have a deal done or if they're not in the process of, of dotting the I's and crossing the T's by the middle of March, then I think that Pac-12 fans will have legitimate reason to worry. Um, but I would expect that, I you don't know if it's going to be next week or in a month, but I would think somewhere around the start of the NCAA tournament, Selection Sunday, somewhere in that window, this thing's going to get wrapped up. I, I still think the, the most likely outcome is that the 10 schools sign a media deal, stick together, maybe add two, maybe not, uh, and then and then we move on after what would, at that point, what would it be, eight months or so? It's long. But, you know, the thing is, this is an unusual deal. I, I, I don't want to ramble here, but we've never seen a college conference with its future in doubt, trying to negotiate a media deal over the course of seven or eight months, because you know the Big Ten last year when they did it, nobody was questioning whether the Big Ten was going to survive. The Big Twelve has been on the brink of uh, collapse a few times, but they had never had a media process play out publicly for this this long. So the Pac Twelve is like kind of uncharted waters here and then you've got another conference that is making overtures about trying to expand and it just ratchets up the the anxiety level i think for Pac-12 fans to to a, a different level
1: yeah I, and when the big 12 commissioner brett yormark says you know that they would like to expand my mind doesn't go to him poaching pac-12 schools even if he likes to leave that vague in order to create that that possibility it goes to Boise State. It goes to Fresno State, two schools that I don't naturally see as great fits in the Pac-12. I think the Big 12 would be awfully interested in them just to get some content in the Pacific time zone and uh, play on that blue field.
7: No, I think that he does. I mean, he's made no bones about the fact he wants to get campuses in the Pacific time zone so that they can kick off at night. Uh, and I would imagine that that goes for, for basketball, too, right? I mean, they're seemingly interested in adding Gonzaga. It'll be interesting because, you know, I mean, that's, that, I, I would guess that these schools would be interested in doing it in football only. But you got to remember, too, there's the, there's the Olympic sport component. And it is hard to justify if you're Boise State having your Olympic sports flipping to Orlando and Cincinnati uh, and Houston. For a weekend of softball or golf, right? That just doesn't make sense. So, those are those are some of the questions that you have to ask and that the university presidents have to solve when you're talking about realignment. Whether it's football-only membership, and if it is football-only membership, you know what does that look like financially?
1: John Wilner with us, uh, Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News. I want to pivot a little bit to college football because it's never too early. Um, You know, we've talked about Washington. We've talked about, you know, some others. But Utah, Cam Rising, it appears that his ACL was torn. He's had a surgery to repair that. Um, Are you concerned at all about Utah trying to get back? Because I I want, like, I'm leaning, Wilner, towards saying they're the champ until someone knocks him off. But if Cam Rising is not 100% going into fall camp, I don't know how I could pick Utah in this conference right now.
7: It, well, it's certainly tough, yes. Uh, the last I saw from Kyle Whittingham was that Rising Wood was on track to, to play in the season opener. That's a huge season opener, right? They're hosting Florida. Uh, if they want to make the playoffs, they got to win that game. So, I just don't know. You know, Rising could be ready to go in early September, but that doesn't mean he's going to be 100%, right? You know, that there's a thin margin there when you're talking about that level of play between being out there but being able to execute at optimum efficiency. And I would imagine if you know he's not going to be at his best and back in rhythm in, until late September, early October. So the question becomes, how does how does Utah handle the early part of their schedule if Rising is it not 100 percent? It's it's hard to it's hard to imagine them you know being as good as. We think they can be until he is 100%.
1: Is there a team that you think is probably a top half of the conference team, but there's a little more volatility to their outlook, meaning, you know, hey, I think they're they're a threat to maybe compete for a conference championship, but they also could be, you know, a seventh-place team in this conference. Is there a team like that in your mind, or most likely to be that kind of team next season?
7: I would say UCLA would be my pick there, right? They've lost a bunch of key guys, and they're bringing in a new quarterback. It's going to be their first new starting quarterback since, I think, 2017. So if UCLA gets good quarterback play, I could see them being in the top four or five, but I could also see them, you know, not replacing Zach Charbonneau very well, not replacing Dorian Thompson Robinson very well not fixing their defense, right? I mean, they've won a bunch of games last year because they could score 40 or 50 points. So if they're not that good on offense and the defense doesn't get fixed, yeah, I could see them finishing seventh. Uh, they're like, to me, they're the, like anti-Oregon State, right? You know exactly what you get with Oregon State. Uh, even though they're changing quarterbacks, you can just count on, count on the Beavers being good. UCLA, to me, is... Is the opposite? They could they could be eight and four. They could be five and seven.
1: Wilner, let me ask you on that front with Oregon State and Oregon. What are the biggest questions in your mind for Dan Landing's team and Jonathan Smith's team?
7: For Lanning, it's defense. I just didn't think Oregon played defense up to its potential last year. I mean, they had a lot of blue chip recruits uh, who I just I think they'd be better, right? And they were. Uh, they were ineffective a lot of times. I mean, certainly late in the season, the Washington and Oregon State games, right? Now, they were probably a little bit worn down, but I did not think Oregon played it to its, uh, its capacity on defense at all. So to me, that's the, that's the question there. And on with the Beavers, the, the honest answer is injuries because as great a job as Jonathan Smith has done, they still don't have the quality of depth, I don't think, that you need to compete to win to go ten and three, you know, like they did. Uh, so that they're always, the organization, you know, it's always a little bit more on the margins with them because of the depth issue. So if they if they can stay pretty healthy, especially on the offensive line, it should be able to, you know, do what they've been doing. But they're God, it's it's just such a slim margin for them.
1: John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News. Thank you for giving us your time. I appreciate you. Have a good evening, and I look forward to seeing your next report.
7: Thanks very much, my friend.
1: There he is. You can read him in the San Jose Mercury News. Pac12Hotline.com is where you get all his info. Follow him on Twitter as well. Leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio. We have a Valentine's Day. Uh, Is this Valentine's Day Eve? I guess it is. Plus, uh, coming up later in the show, the five at five. Five biggest things going on in the world.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: A little semi-charmed life or semi-charmed life. Uh, Rihanna was the entertainment at... The halftime show of Super Bowl 57. Here to talk about it is Anna, who was paying careful attention to the Super Bowl halftime show, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily the Super Bowl. Uh, what did you make, uh, Rihanna, having quite the week? She was. She did the halftime show. She revealed she's expecting her second baby. Uh, she had a little baby bump, and she's performing. Uh, said she wants a whole bunch of babies. <laughs> um. It was interesting because,
9: I, you know, we were watching this with people who are Rihanna fans. So they actually were very in tune with what was happening. They knew the songs like they were mm-hmm. anticipating this more than the football itself. And, uh, you know, I I saw it and I thought, wow, the floating platforms are really cool. I, I think it's really cool that she carried the show just with the backup dancers and by herself. Like. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of like the mashup performance. Yeah. it's it's very confusing to me when I see people combining talent. I mean, last year was actually really good. but other other than last year, I haven't been a fan of those those combination performances. So the fact that I thought that she could carry the thing on her own, I was impressed by that. And then I felt, weird because the comment that i actually made to a friend of mine that i was standing next to as we watched this was wow you know i think it's really cool that she's there she's postpartum and i think a lot of women you know especially i guess performers and if you're on such a huge stage they do everything they can to hide their baby bump like their post baby bump i assumed that this was just sort of, like, still residual from when oh, she had her first so you didn't know she's child.
1: pregnant now. Right. Yeah, I was going to correct you and be like, no, she's pregnant now. Right. She's and that, having a baby. But, and it turns
9: out, like, that was the unexpected guest that she was bringing with her. So it was kind
1: of a mashup then. Because <laughs> yeah. it wasn't just Rihanna. Right, but, right. But this is how, I'm not into this stuff. I'm into the game. The halftime show comes on. And you guys all got in position to look at the TV, and then I kind of went, this is my time to get my eyes off the TV. But I did notice her outfit, this giant red kind of trash bag-looking cape she had on. (laughs) And I don't mean that bad. (laughs) It's just the best way to describe it. It's fashion, John. It's It's not fashion. But, you know, I just, you know, I'm not tuned into, is she married? Does she already have children? Is she dating one of the, you know, who is she dating? You know, apparently she's married to another musician. Uh But I didn't know any of that until people said, good for her. She's pregnant. But then they were like, she also has like a pentagram belt on. And it turns out it's not a pentagram. It's actually the clip on her belt (laughs) that is just plastic. (laughs) So people were zooming in on it. But the whole broadcast, like the commercials and everything, there was a lot of religion that was going on. It was like football brought to you by the military mm-hmm. and God during the game. <laughs> and I thought that was that felt different to me. This wasn't like the normal Super Bowl production. Yeah. It was very go America, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought, that's fine. Somebody wants to buy airtime. That's cool. Buy airtime, whatever. But there was a lot of debate about that that was very distracting for me. Uh, But did you think she performed well? Did she sing well? I thought she
9: sang great. I mean, but, you know, uh, my bar is not very low. To me, it's more the spectacle of, like, what I kept thinking is, I just can't imagine having the kind of talent where you get up on a stage like that and perform – you know, at that level for people all around the world. So I just kind of—I guess I just kind of figure anybody who gets tapped to go and do that has some level of talent and deserves to be there. Like I'm not going to be among the chorus of people that sit here and like yeah. criticize her performance. Yeah, but remember the it weekend? Wasn't better than this. Remember and, the
1: weekend? It's a free show. Remember when the uh-huh. weekend did the thing? Yeah, that was. It was weird. It was weird. It was a really but, weird know. performance. It was very abstract. I yeah. felt like I was in a museum and I had to pretend like I. <laughs> <laughs> got it, and I didn't get it. Like, I was looking at the painting, I didn't see anything. Yeah. People were like, you need to look, he's exhausting the reds in this painting. And I'm like, I don't see it. But see, so, a lot of
9: people loved that performance. They loved that no,
1: performance. No, I did not.
9: I thought her outfit, I, I was like, oh, she looks like a, a contestant on Squid Game. A little. <laughs> little, bit. little bit. That red outfit. A little bit. But, but she's, then, yeah. what I thought was funny, too, is people who had clearly read up on all of this prior to the show had anticipated that she would have a special guest because that was kind of the rumor. And so I think there's a a handful of people (laughs) who watched it and then were disappointed because they were like, well, who was the special guest? Oh, there was no special guest. Oh, by the way, an hour later or whatever, it comes out, the special guest was the baby in her belly. Okay,
1: there you go. Okay, she also becomes the first woman to perform at a Super Bowl halftime show while pregnant. Yeah. Do they know that though? <laughs> like can you know what I mean? Like do they fact check that? How do we know? Beyoncé, yeah. Diana Ross. Let's go back. All these people. <laughs> when did life begin? How do we know they were not with child? How do we know this? <laughs> and then like, you know, I don't know, like it, it just that was weird to me. Like like it's cool for her and it's and it's neat for her fans. To say, oh, look, this is, you know, you got a second baby. You got the baby bump going on. Did this become a talking point in your household, Steven? Peter, did you guys, (laughs) did the Rihanna halftime show, how did that go over where you were watching the game?
3: Uh, So I'll be 100% honest here. Uh, My wife and me, not big Rihanna fans. I think she's a little overrated. Uh, I'm more of a Beyonce guy. I like Beyonce Mm -hmm. if I'm going to go, you know, that genre. Um, so we weren't too excited about it, so we actually went and got ice cream with the kids during that time and then what? came back. Yeah. You left your home? We left the home, yeah. We, we thought, we're not, you know, I don't like the I don't like Rihanna's song, so I was like, I don't need to listen <laughs> so, to this. So, we so you left the house we like le- someone pulled the fire alarm? Yeah, we <laughs> left the house. We're like, kids, we got about 30 minutes. Let's go get some ice <laughs> wow. cream. They had some wow. gift cards, got some, uh, got some ice cream, then came
1: back home. It was, it was best yeah. the yeah. Was there a line at the ice
3: cream place? <laughs> no, not at all. There was nobody on the road. There <laughs> no was nobody there. in the store or anything. It was great.
1: You were like, uh, "This is a Star Trek episode." I'm just driving around. Nobody there. <laughs> Peter, how did the Rihanna performance go over where you were watching? Uh, did you I also don't, get ice cream?
5: Uh, no, but I took a shower because I had a dinner <laughs> reservation. I have no interest in that too. Uh, took a nice long hot shower, <laughs> oh nice and lathered. Gosh. You know, lather, rinse, repeat. Then condition. <laughs> You're came choking. out. No, no, I'm what not are we kidding. Talking at all. about. Here. Took my time getting dressed. Came out heard the, at last end of the medley literally the two only Rihanna songs I even know. Oh, that's kind of cool. She's way up there. That was it. Watched the rest of the game. Went out and had some Italian. Went to Scholar. It was good.
1: It, it was that's amazing to me that these two yahoos went for ice cream in a shower. While Rihanna's performing. Wow. I mean, I've watched pretty much every other halftime performance. I just I'm
3: not a big Rihanna guy. I, I just don't yeah. li- I just don't like I don't like you know, she's yeah. very talented. I just don't like her music, don't like her style. I just wasn't I wasn't into it. When she was announced, but it's a as-
1: Super Bowl halftime show. I gotta be honest, like I'm not a huge like I'm not a huge Rolling Stones fan. Yeah, like yeah. I feel like that was my parents' music, and you know I got a little bit of it. I, I I'm not going to turn the channel though when they're performing. I'm going to watch it, you know. And, <laughs> or if uh, you know, Maroon Five is up there, do or or you know if Sting yeah, you is are, doing you it. Are a Maroon 5 fan. If Sting is well, but a great example is like Sting. Uh-huh. I was at a Super Bowl where he was the act. Yeah. Okay, I'm not a big Sting. So I'm a stinger, you know, I'm not a huge sting fan. He's listenable, I, you know, but he's performing and it's the Super Bowl. So I go, okay, I can give him eight minutes of my life here. Yeah. Well, we
3: didn't take it lightly. We had a long discussion, um, <laughs> like, at the start of the game when we saw, we saw the kids had gift cards for ice cream. And the kids asked for it. We're like, "Is it? Were worth they
1: expiring it? at the fourth quarter?" Or no, <laughs> no, they, they
3: they had just they had just gotten it. But we were like, "Is it? Is it worth it?" Like, we're not big Rihanna people. Like, I mean, I think I think we could do it. This if we're going to do it during Super Bowl, Man. it's this year. So it was <laughs> no, not. We didn't take this lightly.
1: It was a very long about the first Rihanna quarter. Rihanna was so bad that you went for ice cream and no, I, went. I, you sure... know what? I just remembered. I need a shower. I'm sure she was great. I I heard my my wife's sister. She told me she was she was great. Uh, (laughs) I
3: got got all the deets.
9: I have another question for Peter, though. You made a reservation at a nice Italian (laughs) restaurant
6: for some
9: time after the Super Bowl. How did you know it wasn't going to, like, go into <laughs> overtime? Because it may very well have. It was close enough. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. No, and we were playing it close because the reservation was for 730, and that game, like, it was 710. And, yeah. and there was They kicked the field goal at 710. We had our coats on, shoes on, <laughs> and I was like, okay, so they're going to squib kick it here, and I'm going to take my chances. Like, Philly's got time for one play. We're going to be fine, but I'm going to tell you, Kim, there is a one in 1,000 chance that we just made the biggest mistake that anyone has made in this city. But, we, yeah, we rolled to the restaurant. They were amazed that anyone even walked in. It was so dead. We got seated yeah.
1: right away at the meal. It was okay. There you go. Get a shower and an Italian, uh, you know, a plate of pasta. <laughs> i had never okay. heard of anyone making Bowl. a
9: reservation like for a yeah. nice restaurant well, right after the game. here's how the it's finish balding. went
1: where we were, and again, we were at we were at uh, Anna's friend's house to watch the Super Bowl. There were several party, couples yeah. there, yep. and it was great. But uh, the guys were watching the game, and I looked over as. You know, the Chiefs are lining up for what would be the game-winning field goal. And I look up and I'm going, you know what? Um, They're not watching the game. (laughs) And I'm going, hey, they're about to win the game. (laughs) And Anna kind of looked over. Oh, they are? Like, you didn't watch very much of the football. What were you guys talking about over there?
9: Just all kinds of stuff. I figured, like, after halftime – is when I decided that I could stop pretending to care about the game, and Mm. we just gathered over the dining room table and talked about, you know, women things.
1: Yeah, I look over there, and I'm like, this is a heavy discussion going on over there. (laughs) (laughs) But in the meantime, football is happening. Here we go. Hurts. Hurts. As all day. Now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. And Anna is talking about what <laughs> at that moment? Uh, gossiping? You guys gossiping about something? Oh, I'm sure yeah. there
9: was a little gossip in yeah. there, you know.
1: We'll see. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the bald face truth.
0: Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with the Pulse from 6 to 7. On 750 the game.
1: We were snacking yesterday during the Super Bowl. The play uh, the party we went to, everybody brought a bunch of snacks. It was good stuff, man. Quality food. It was quality food. Great hosts. And and they brought, like, they surprised because there was all these dips and jalapeno poppers and, you know, what is it called? Charcuterie (laughs) board? When did a charcuterie (laughs) board become a thing? Can we just stop for a second? Can I get a 20-second timeout? Look, I like to think I grew up refined. Probably didn't. But I like to think I did. (laughs) I never heard of a thing called a charcuterie board before I was a grown-up living in a pandemic. Like, I didn't hear this phrase thrown around five, seven years ago. Maybe I was living in a cave. Maybe I'm just not refined. But did we start calling this something different? Or (laughs) was I just introduced for the first time to like a winery? And they went, this is a charcuterie board. We've been doing this for decades. Welcome.
5: I, I, I think you might have been living in a cave a little bit. But uh, t- to your point, though, I think a lot of people might have been calling it, you know, uh, antipasto, antipasti, right? Yeah. Some cured yes. meats, some cheeses. Mm. Yes. But I, I think the idea is now that we're putting it on the, the board, you know, we we get our cute little cheese board and we put it on there. Oh, it's a charcuterie board. It's a charcuterie tray. But but you acknowledge the idea of the cured meats and stuff as antipasto, right?
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. But I, Or we would just call it an hors d'oeuvre and we'd be yeah. like, hey, we got some cheese and some salami but For now meat and and cheese we got platter. a meat and cheese platter I'm with
3: you John I never heard of it this is this is fake I don't know I
5: never heard of it is yeah fake? it yeah.
1: sounds like fake news yeah. man I think the
9: first time we had one was at a winery yes. about four or five years ago we were like oh what's that oh okay we'll sounded get that fancy sounded fancy and then I think it honestly was during the pandemic there were all these videos that came out with people making these really fancy artistic charcuterie boards. Like, they were big on Instagram reels and TikToks, and then everybody started doing it.
1: I, uh, we were at, uh, you know the winery we were at. Stoller. We, yeah, okay, we were at Stoller. And this, we're sitting on the lawn, which is a great place to sit on like a summer day. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I hear, and I'm like, what the heck is that sound? Something in my ear. Is there a bug overhead? And it gets closer. It's a helicopter. It's coming in. And I'm like, oh, they're just flying over the vineyard? No, they're landing there. They land in the middle of the field, and a bunch of hoity-toity people climb out of this helicopter, <laughs> and it departs, and these people wander up the hill to go get a charcuterie board and a taste of wine. And I thought to myself, I'm so out of my element here, and I'm just grateful that the Stoller family and their great vineyard would have me on their grass, you know, eating a meat and cheese plate, in my mind, and drinking some wine. But we fancied, you know, I'm just, I'm not blaming Stoller. It's not their fault that somebody decided to helicopter in. Major flex. For some wine. Right? Major flex. Yeah. Do you, should we do that? No. Should, no. Should we helicopter no. in sometime? No, we should not. People be like, oh, look at that. Gonzano's big time, man. <laughs> look at, he's flying in in a helicopter. You know what I would do? I wouldn't even have it land. I would just drop a rope. And I would shinny, shimmy down. It's By the way, it's shinny down. I would shinny down the rope <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. and then Mission drop onto the style. ground, uh-huh. pull out some binoculars, yeah. look around, and then I would wave you guys all down. And one by one, you guys come climbing down that rope. Uh-huh. It would be like a special ops kind yes. of arrival yes. kind of thing. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You, you guys see ever that. seen an, anybody wine taste in a helicopter? I've seen it. While I'm eating my charcuterie board. <laughs> Is that how you say it? Uh I eat this board or no? I'm sitting in your Adirondack chair? (laughs) I'm sitting in a temporary chair eating my meat and cheese plate, and here comes a helicopter. Suddenly I'm like, I'm out of my element here. You guys ever seen a helicopter arrive on a wine tour?
5: Uh, i haven't uh i guess it makes sense that it would be a stoller it's not my favorite wine but it's probably the best view out of any winery in the uh, the uh, willamette valley that's wild though that's big time i'm j- it's so yeah. hilly like where do you where do you even land that cuz they, la-
1: they land is out there? in the middle by that big giant tree they mm-hmm. have and they land it and then the people came kind of rumbling up the hill hillside like scavengers like a recon mission and then they went in and They had their wine tasting. With the women in flowy dresses. And then they had their (laughs) wine, and then it was like, we're sitting here the whole time. Then maybe about a half an hour later, (laughs) here it comes again. (laughs) It lands again. And they go running out to jump in. I guess they're off to the next winery. (laughs) That's pretty. That's a pretty solid flex. Uh-huh. We need to do a BFT wine tour. <laughs> I know the Stoller family listens to the show. I got an email or two from them over the years saying they enjoy listening to the show. Maybe they should sponsor a segment. We'll just helicopter people in and out. I don't want a helicopter in. Caller number five gets to, you know, get dropped right at the winery. <laughs> you know, you don't want to do a well, helicopter. You know friend?
9: that traffic through wine country really can be. Pretty, drag, It's right? pretty
1: solid, man. Gotta
5: go around Dundee, man.
1: <laughs> or the other thing we could do instead of a helicopter is, you know how like Roloff Farms used to have the pumpkin launcher? It was yeah. kind of a catapult. Mm-hmm. We could put yeah. some of the wine tasters in the catapult seat yeah. and yeah. just catapult them one winery to the next. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Drop them in. Mm-hmm. Bang! Incoming!
9: Yeah, let's find the most unusual way to travel between wineries in Yamhill County.
1: But anyway, we brought a charcuterie board to this Super Bowl party. And uh, Anna was going to make it in the shape of a football. She's going to do all time. the salami and pepperoni in the shape of a football. I don't get the point of that. Just lay it out. People are going to eat it. They don't I don't care know. if it looks like a football, Anna. Well,
9: it's for I was the gram, trying, though. but I, I ran out of time. I didn't leave myself enough time to, like, fold
1: all the things. And you Yeah, know, it's for the
3: pictures, it. though. You just got to take a good it's picture. It. That's all it for the, is. The, for the gram.
1: It's for the gram. It's <laughs> for the t- gram. Right, for leave, the talk. Leave it here. Still ahead. The Five at Five is coming up. <laughs>
0: Back to the Bald-Faced Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: There's a huge women's college basketball game that took place on Saturday. Or Sunday, rather. Sorry, I'm still uh, caught on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, South Carolina, the defending national champion, has been the number one team since the preseason. Uh, They were one of only two unbeaten teams in women's college basketball. LSU was the other. Now, Anna, you and I got to see LSU play earlier this season. We were at the uh, Maui Classic, and Oregon State was playing against LSU. And LSU dominated Oregon State, and... I thought was a little classless in their approach. I thought they were it was a display of poor sportsmanship by Kim Mulkey's team. She doesn't care. Uh, you know, she's won three national championships at Baylor. She's now the coach at LSU. Her coaching staff and Mulkey herself, um, poor display of sportsmanship. And I thought they were a little bully-like with the officials, with the opposing team. There's a lot of trash talking. It just wasn't a great feel. Not a a lot of sportsmanship going on there. But uh, I almost called the 6-year-old and the 8-year-old in to watch them play a game uh, Sunday morning against South Carolina, the defending national champion. Two unbeaten teams playing, and the Gamecocks of South Carolina absolutely destroyed LSU, beat them by 24 at Colonial Life Arena, first defeat of the season for LSU. LSU is now twenty-three and one. South Carolina twenty-five and zero. Don Staley at South Carolina's got two national championships. Kim Mulkey's got three. But uh, I thought it was. Uh, and by the way, Staley had on a Randall Cunningham jersey on the sideline, which I thought was a awesome move by her. But um, South Carolina led the game eighteen to two at the beginning. Um. I'm not going to say I don't like LSU's team. I don't like the way they acted in that game against Oregon State. And, I, frankly, I saw them play another game against Nevada. They did the same thing. They were just really interested in trying to put 100 points on somebody and really interested in, you know, uh, blocking a shot, then walking over. Steven, you know the move. Somebody knocks you down, blocks your shot, whatever, or they score on you and they, walk, they step over you. There was a lot of stepping over going on by that LSU team. Yeah,
3: that is a uh, clear sign of disrespect uh, on the basketball court. <laughs> like that is that is one of the moves that uh, would would not fly with the, with a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it, if I I think the only thing that kept this from being a potential scuffle on the court was that Oregon State was in way over its head. In this game, to the point where like it, they were getting dominated, they were getting beat, they were going to lose by fifty or sixty. I think they lost by sixty to LSU, and it was evident LSU was the better team, and LSU wanted Oregon State to know it, right? But I just felt like it was a bad display of sportsmanship, and so there was part of me, even as a media member, as I watched LSU get in this game with South Carolina, that kind of said, "Hey, maybe they need this. <laughs> this is good for them." But I remember Kim Mulkey at halftime, she's screaming at the officials, she's up by 50. And she's screaming at the official and she was out of line. I think part of what made it so stark
9: and dramatic for me was that here they were at the Maui Invitational. I mean, we were in what was essentially like a high school gymnasium. And... You know, it's definitely a family atmosphere. You have very laid-back Hawaiians yeah. in the audience. Yeah, who the are national just here.
1: anthem is a ukulele, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Say, you know.
8: yeah.
9: And, and so it was sort of, it was such a contrast to the feel of the whole island and the feel of the people who lived nearby and were just kind of popping in to watch this because it was going on and it's interesting to watch. And then you have LSU. And how, it's almost hard to explain if you weren't there or haven't seen something similar yourself. It was the way they were screaming at the officials so they had as many uh, assistant coaches as players on the
1: bench. Yeah that was alarming to me too. It was, it was remarkable it was support it was the support staff but it's a lot of analysts you know clearly they have some money and they've got the ability to hire you know some people as, air quotes here, coaches who aren't in a coaching role.
9: But it's almost like they were hired just to be there to be um, psychologically influential yeah. on the referees who, you know, I don't know how much experience they had in calling games like that. It was a Pac-12 crew. Okay. so yeah. you, But you could clearly see that they were affecting the outcome of the game and yes. the outcome of calls just in the way that they were, how belligerently they were going after officials on, like, every – Every two minutes, there, they were, actually they were think, losing their minds over something. I
1: actually think Mulkey assigned one or two of the assistants to just ride the officials because the assistants themselves were not coaching. They were literally just screaming at the officials on every trip down the court. And I was just like, okay, we get it. But the thing that bothered me even more is the officials allowed themselves to be intimidated. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't normally do this. But I walked by one of the Pac-12 officials at halftime, and I said, "Don't let them intimidate you." Like the, you know, like it was, it was clear LSU was going to win the game, but it was also clear that the officials called some calls against LSU early, and then had Kim Mulkey and her whole staff screaming at him. And I don't know, it was just part of me seeing South Carolina win that game, where I went, you know what, the yeah, LSU had that coming. What's also confusing to me is that all of those assistant
9: coaches or whoever they were on the bench for LSU were nonstop screaming at their own players. You know. So it was like it was like an extreme micromanaging of a basketball team. Like on one hand, you could look at it and be like, "Oh wow, that entire bench and their crowd is very passionate." And very plugged in and very intense like if you wanted to paint it with like a positive brush you could say it like that but the flip side is like oh my gosh like I couldn't imagine being a player and then just being shouted for all four quarters of a game and like being incredibly micromanaged as I tried to play I don't it's I don't a, even understand it's how a different that style success. though
1: it's a different style because I think you see programs in men's basketball that have that as well, where some of the coaches, coaches are disciplinarians or they yell a lot, they're yellers, but then you have other coaches, they're more player coaches, and, you know, I don't know. Steven, when you played some college ball, did you respond better to somebody barking at you or somebody encouraging you?
3: Uh, I'm more of in between. Like, if you just yell at me for no reason, um, I'm not going to react to that well, but if, you're, if you yell at me, And I understand why I did something wrong. Like, you're actually teaching me and you're yelling me. I'm okay with that for sure. Like, I'm not against being yelled at. Um, But I'm definitely more of the side of, like, pull me off to the side and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Or have a conversation with me rather than just call me out in front of the team. But, um, like, yelling, and you're right on. Like, especially people at that level. Like, some people react so much better to yelling and screaming and chaos, basically, on the court rather than, like, structured organization. So, Maybe the LSU is just very, uh, you know, they kind of want to be unorganized type. Not organized, but, you know, chaos type of thing when they're coaching. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think it's just a matter of the kid who it is. But for me, yeah, I, I didn't want to be yelled at. But if you did yell at me, at least have a reason for doing it.
1: Yeah, I, and look, I don't mind. I, I covered coaches that were on various sides of that spectrum, too. Jerry Tarkanian was not a yeller, okay? He wasn't screaming at his guys. He wasn't, you know, he, he was encouraging them. He would yell often in a timeout. He would say, rebound. That's all the instruction he would give. And I think there was some logic in it because I think some of the players that Tark was coaching, you know, had shorter attention spans. Like, it just, it, you know, he, he knew he had guys that were, in some cases, not, you know, weren't academic qualifiers out of high school, and he would be very simple with them. In, and not overwhelm his team during a timeout. I've seen other coaches who will scream and yell. Tark would go, rebound. we got to rebound better. And that was the only instruction he would give. I've seen other coaches who will get in there, and they're yelling 15 things at the players, and the, I'm going, you know, what are they actually hearing in that mm-hmm. timeout? But Kim Mulkey's players, I think they're just afraid. Like, they're getting screamed at by the coaches The whole game. But
9: that's what's confusing to me is that the program has been so successful with that model. And what's interesting, too, is that the crowd actually buys into that, too. Like the LSU fans are taking the cue from how the coaches are behaving. Yeah, they
1: were doing the same thing. A lot of them were parents, though. (laughs) A lot of them were parents. I don't get it. I don't get it. We'll see. Leave it here. The five at five is coming up.
0: BFFT. From the PAC West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth.
1: Well, we've talked about the Super Bowl. Chiefs beat the Eagles, in case you missed it. Rihanna's pregnant again. PAC-12 sounds a little bit in its own head today. Issuing a statement saying everything's fine. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. We're unified. I believe they're unified. I just I'm puzzled by that reaction Anna's popped in. She's gonna give us the five biggest stories from her vantage point What are they? Stick around here. We go the five at five The five at five Number one on the board. Anna, where are you going with this? It's so strange. They spent two
9: years preparing that field for the Super Bowl, but that's what a lot of people are talking about today and last night, that it was such a slippery and terrible surface that players were losing their footing, falling all over the place. The Eagles kicker, Jake Elliott, uh, on kickoff. I mean, just you got players like Hassan Reddick. They're not holding back on how terrible it was, just saying that it was the worst field that he's ever played on. It's amazing that the NFL spent $800,000 in two years preparing the grass for that game, and yet everyone is talking about how awful it was.
1: Yeah, Steven said earlier in the show he thinks it might be a... He has a conspiracy theory on it. He thinks that the NFL has been under criticism to bring grass into every NFL stadium, was basically going, here, this is what you asked for. We're bringing grass in. It's not going to be very good. And maybe the takeaway is all these players stop talking about player safety as they're slipping around. Both teams had to play in it, though. I don't think it was that big a deal. It was noticeable. I think it hurt the Eagles a little more than the Chiefs. But what also hurt the Eagles was a turnover that was a key turnover. They didn't make some plays on defense in the second half. And the Kansas City Chiefs made all the adjustments in the world. Before I can talk about officiating, before I can talk about the grass, I have to talk about the football. The Chiefs were better in the Super Bowl. Number two in the 5 at 5. Go, Anna. I'm only doing this
9: because I'm proving that LeBron James is truly finding a way to be in the headlines every day. Okay. And uh, so he was in attendance at the Super Bowl, (laughs) and he's managed to get in the headlines again today. By criticizing the officiating in the Super Bowl as well, they're saying he's saying that this was uh, not not a not good calls. Frustrated with the holding call that effectively won the game for Kansas City. Yeah,
1: but the the problem is it was a holding call. It was a hold. You can't. You know, the officials on the field made a call. It's a hold in week one. It's a hold in week eight. It's a hold in the first quarter. It's a hold in the third quarter. It has to be a hold here. And the player who got flagged on the play, uh, you know, James Bradbury, basically came out and said it was a hold. I committed. I hope they wouldn't call it, but it actually was a hold. Here's Bradbury.
8: Hmm. I mean, that's not up for my judgment. You know, I, I was hoping he would let it go, but of course, you know, he's a ref. It's a big game. Um, and it was. It was a hold. So they called it.
1: It was a hold. He says it was a hold. And oh by the way, tackle Patrick Mahomes when he's running for 25 yards. Don't turn the ball over. Make a better adjustment. Uh, the Eagles have themselves to blame here, not the officials. LeBron whining about officiating.
9: He's saying he has no horse in the race, just his a professional yeah. opinion.
1: I look, I thought the <laughs> officiating was was alright. It wasn't the story of the game, nor was the turf. But I get why people talk about these things. There's a lot of interest in the game. Number three in the Five at Five. Go. I would love to know the deal that Disney has with all these
9: players because Patrick Mahomes went from hanging out with the Chainsmokers, like straight to Disneyland, brought his wife Brittany and the kids. They were escorted through the theme park in a car. Lots of fans gathered to say hi to the quarterback. I just, that's incredible to me that, like, that turnaround is is
1: a beeline for
6: Disneyland
1: the very next day. But that's tradition. Did you not know that was tradition that began 36 years ago uh, after the Super Bowl? So, you know, what's next after you just won the MVP and you won the Super Bowl? What's next? I'm going to Disneyland. Yeah. That's how it started. So... You know, Patrick Mahomes going to the Super Bowl, or and then going to Disneyland. So pretty cool, pretty smart by Disney as well. But people may remember Phil Simms saying it in 1987. What's next? I'm going to the I'm going to Disneyland. Um, by the way, Simms said uh, that he he originally wasn't going to do that commercial the Friday night of the. Super Bowl week that week for the New York Giants they beat the Giants the uh, Giants beat the Broncos 39 20 in that Rose Bowl game in Pasadena Um, and uh, Phil Sims told his agent uh, on the Friday night before the game he finally agreed he would do it if they won the game so there you go going to uh, Disneyland Patrick Mahomes taking the kids too. number four in the five at five pretty sweet deal uh, some non-Super Bowl
9: news. New Mexico State won't resume their season. They've canceled the remainder of their men's basketball season after reviewing a police report that cites three players for false imprisonment, harassment, and counts of criminal sexual contact against a teammate.
1: Hazing, uh, right?
9: This was hazing, yeah, like to an exponential degree. They uh, Three members of the team allegedly held the victim down removed his clothing uh and that's when the inappropriate touching happened this was a three-on-one type of situation and i don't understand how in this day and age anyone thinks this is a good idea
1: yeah i looked at the uh police report it doesn't really say much more than false imprisonment two counts of criminal sexual conduct apparently uh This hazing stuff's been going on since July of 2022. So this has been a thing. They hold players down. They remove their clothing. They expose their backside, and they begin to, quote, unquote, slap his backside. And there's more. But we, it's, All right. I just, I don't, I don't get it. This is horrible. (laughs) This is, this is not, this should be nowhere near, any sporting event, any team, any set of athletes, group of athletes, this, you know, I'm glad that they're taking this seriously at New Mexico State. The coaching staff, flush them, get rid of them all. They probably already have, but this is unacceptable. And the Western Athletic Conference, you know, of it, the commissioner there has already put out a statement too, saying, look, this is this is uh, not in the spirit of what they want in the whack. It's terrible. Number four. Five. 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 Uh, (laughs) The hazing threw me.
9: The annual Islands Ice Fishing Derby in Vermont has been canceled. What? Two separate incidents led to three fishermen dying because they fell through the ice at Lake Champlain. Whoops. The derby was about to celebrate its 43rd edition. Raises money as part of the conservation effort in protecting the lake. But uh, there have been three incidents with the thin ice and people falling through and not surviving. This is uh, not my idea of fun. It's really unfortunate.
1: So what are you saying, that they canceled it because...
9: They canceled it because... Safety. Yeah, yeah. There were two brothers. That's
1: not ice fishing if people are falling through it. There were two brothers who had
9: their um, vehicle... Break through the ice, oh, and man. they died. Well, That's crazy.
1: I'm not. I I've never
9: been ice fishing. I don't.
1: I don't want to go after hearing that. Y-
9: you didn't want to go before hearing that, but
1: after hearing that, I'm definitely out. <laughs>
9: Anything that involves ice and cold, uh, you're you're not really I'm signing not, up I'm for not it. a
1: cold weather sport <laughs> guy. I've covered a Winter Olympics. <laughs> there was no snow at it. It was, no, it was in, in Vancouver, Vancouver.
6: <laughs> yeah.
1: The first Winter Olympics with no snow, I was fine with it. But uh, Remember that? That was yeah. a joke. It was. it was so balmy. Yeah. There was no snow. Dun, dun, da, dun, dun. Parking lot, just clear, no snow. Yeah, we're at the Winter Games here in Vancouver. <laughs> That's the five at five, five biggest things going on. Um, ice fishing. Anybody ever been ice fishing?
3: No, that's a no for me. Uh not a uh I'm not a water guy, so I'm afraid like I'm afraid that I would fall in and, you know, something would happen.
1: Wouldn't go well for you. Yeah, either. no, yeah. I, I'm out of that. Yeah, I'm not a uh Peter, you ever
5: been ice fishing? You know I, anything about ice fishing? I do not uh I've been normal fishing, but no, never done it in that cold weather. Interesting.
3: You ever well, uh look up noodling before? Um,
1: Noodling? Should English. I at work? Is you it safe? A on that. Yeah, no it's, no, it's
3: it's a real thing. It's in the south. It's where you yeah. uh, fish for catfish. catfish. yeah, With oh, your, yeah. With yeah. your yeah. hand. Yeah, you just yeah. put your hand in the water and the
1: catfish what? eat it. And then you yeah. pull it out. Yeah. You use your... What? And the catfish... Your bait, hand is the bait? No, they yeah. basically get down. You get down in the river. You get down on your belly in the river. You get your elbow in the mud and everything. And the catfish basically goes all the way up your arm. Oh, no, no. No, no, And thank then you. you lift it up out nope. of the water. nope.
3: I've nope. had a whole conversation about this with people because they say noodler. in the South uh, they really judge you if you wear a glove because you could you know, if you're a newbie <laughs> you could wear a glove, but you know if you're a true noodler you don't
1: wear a glove down there. A noodler. No noodlers.
9: I'm allergic to that word as a verb because I used to have a boss that used it all the time. What do
1: you mean? Like, noodle? let's noodle on let's that? Let's
9: noodle on that. Let's noodle that idea. Now you, know? you forever I, see him I with I a can't.
1: giant catfish up to his elbow.
9: It was a her, but yeah.
1: Okay, her mm-hmm, with yeah. a giant catfish up to her elbow. Yeah,
9: I'd rather actually picture that.
1: There you go. All right, coming up, uh, so much more ahead. I've got so much to talk about. We need to deal with the looming question in the room. What is it? I'll tell you next.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: You know, it's interesting, during the commercial break, Anna and I were talking about the, uh, the fishing story, the ice fishing story. There are sports that put the lives of the competitors in danger like there are sports like you know you look at uh, the guy who was climbing the uh, el capitan in in yosemite and he's doing it without uh, it's a free climb and you you think about okay that's that's someone taking their lives in their own hands when they're when they're playing a sport or participating in a sport or you look at some of the um, some of the extreme sports where they you know, the, the guys that jump off the side of a cliff and they have sort of the suit on that turns them into a flying squirrel and you go, oh, you know, that's somebody who I would never do that. That puts their life in danger. Do, like, I've never thought about ice fishing as that kind of sport. And, and frankly, before this season, like, even though we've had cases of players who have been severely injured, paralyzed, suffered brain injuries, uh, and we even had a, a case or two of a player in a professional football game who died on the field. Before the DeMar Hamlin case on that Monday night, I had not – you don't expect to go to a football game and have somebody get seriously injured or lose their life. And it jars you in a way that, you know, I don't – it's – you know, I wish on no one, right? We all went through that together, and I'm glad DeMar Hamlin – survived from it but man i have never thought about ice fishing as something that i wanted to do now fishermen may call in and they may tell me this is the greatest thing ever but we uh we very quickly pivoted into noodling um kind of a really somber story when you really think about it those ice fishermen who are out there on the ice and uh obviously not signing up for what they thought was a dangerous activity when it ends up, uh, you know, costing the lives of people. So, you know, I have, I wanted to get to our burning question, but we've got fishermen calling in. Jim in Portland has called in. Jim's going to help provide some context here. Jim, welcome to the show. Have you been ice fishing before, Jim? Is this a dangerous activity that, do, do the ice fishermen know they're taking their lives in their hands when they get out there?
4: John. I'm not even a fisherman, let alone an ice fisherman. I just took an uh, objection to the giggling and laughing that was going on during the uh, discussion of of the accident. I just thought it was in poor taste.
6: Yeah,
1: and I, I don't blame you on that. When we first started talking about it, I didn't know people had died, what was happening. It got canceled? Oh, why did it get canceled? And then we ended up talking about noodling, but I appreciate you calling in holding us accountable on that. Thanks for doing that. But I don't, like when it comes to some of these sports, there are obviously when you have hunting or fishing, you have the outdoors involved. I saw a story the other day about these two hunters who ended up uh, encountering a bear when they were out hunting. And they had unfortunately set their weapons and their their uh, bear spray down and ended up having to climb up a tree now i didn't know this and i don't think the hunters knew this but the bears can climb the trees and if you're a hunter out there you may be laughing at my my lack of knowledge when it comes to hunting and fishing but the bears themselves could climb the trees and so this one guy ended up uh the bear climbed the tree grabbed the guy by the leg and pulled him down mauled him did not kill him and then he was laying there you know not doing well he's bleeding The bear goes after the other hunter and climbs up the tree and does the same thing, grabs the other hunter by the leg, and the guy just decides, you know what, I'm not going to let him pull me down the tree, I'm actually going to fall down the tree on top of this bear, and he fell down on top of the bear, and the bear was stunned by that, he grabbed the bear mace and the bear spray, and then went climbed back up the tree, And then the bear, after it composed itself, starts climbing back up the tree after the guy. There's nothing funny about this, but I'm, like, afterwards I'm thinking about this going, okay, if you're out hunting and you encounter a bear, like, you want to make sure that you have your weapon or you have bear spray on you, not on the ground. So he he got his bear spray and literally sprayed it right into the mouth of the bear, incapacitating the bear. And then the bear, like, went away because he obviously didn't like what had happened. Then the guy got down the tree, and he had his buddy to save. So he ended up, like, they ended up okay, but it was one of those moments where you, like, think, hey, this is a fun outdoors trip, but you have to recognize, I guess in the case of the ice fishing as well, that you're dealing with elements. You're dealing with not a predictable, you're not dealing with, you know, a track. You're not dealing with concrete and asphalt in a stadium. You're you're not even dealing like with this case of the Super Bowl, where you have, you know, the variable of turf that is grass that ends up being a you know a storyline after the game where people go, oh, you know, even this turf that they had prepared for two years couldn't be counted on. Think about the elements when you talk about ice fishing. I didn't know you drove your car out on the ice when you're ice fishing. I didn't, you know, I've seen videos of it. I seen it as a recreation. I have friends who have grown up in places like Minnesota and they go, oh yeah, we go ice fishing. I've never been one to go, hey, that's something I want to try. Not to make light of the people who lost their lives doing it, of course. But there are just some sports that bring on risk. Um, where are you guys at with risk in sport? Because you get a guy like Alex Honold who does the free climb. Of El Capitan in Yosemite, and we call it sport. But there's an element there that if he falls off the face of of the mountain, of you know, and dies, where we all go, he's crazy. He, you know, he loved doing what he loved to do. He died doing what he loved to do. Same goes for a guy like Bill Johnson, who was you know, at one time, you know, the greatest downhill skier in the world. Went faster than anybody. He wanted to go fast. We all know that that story ended up tragic as well with Bill Johnson. Where are you guys at with how much risk do you want? How much danger do you want in your sport? Because I find, especially with television being part of the equation, that sometimes danger is what gets the TV crew there.
3: Well, I mean, you think about, like, uh, you know, racing and stuff like that, like NASCAR. I feel like one of the things, not as much anymore, but when I was growing up, it seemed like they would really highlight, like, the crashes, right? And, like, that was very dangerous, and that's, like, what people would want to see, but you also know that they could die at the same time. Like, for me, like, that stuff is, I mean, for lack of a better word, like, it almost scares me a little bit. Like, I don't like to watch it just in case something crazy did happen. Like, I don't want to watch You, just,
1: you don't want to watch No, that.
3: like, I don't want to watch somebody die in front of my eyes. Like, I just think, like, that's just not something I want to do. And even, you know, sports like UFC and stuff like that, there's just ultra-violent, like, I'm not super into it because I don't I just don't want to see my – I don't want to see that stuff. Like it just it doesn't bring me pleasure, right? Like I like watching basketball or football or baseball because I feel like there's a very slight chance I'm going to see someone die or you know get hurt where I'm going to be grossed out. Like you even see those like leg injuries. I hate watching those. Like I can't stand that stuff. So I, I I'm not I'm not against it though. Like if you like that stuff and you're good at it, I'll go all, all for right, it. Let me, but let, let I, me I pe- just don't let me
1: pepper it. you though. Let me pepper you. Okay? So What about UFC fighting? What about football as it becomes more evident that this is a dangerous thing that people have been partaking in? What about um, motorsports racing when you see accidents? You know, it's what gets everybody's attention. There's an accident in NASCAR. We all go and we gravitate towards watching it. At what point do you become uncomfortable with the danger in the sport? Because, you know, we brought up ice fishing and, you know, we shouldn't be laughing at that because, you know, people's lives were lost there. And as that story unfolded and we ended up talking about noodling and some other things, but, like, it's—there is inherent danger in a lot of these sports that I feel like some people love to see the danger part of it because it's in, it makes it more interesting to them. No, I think you're right. I think there are some people that do enjoy it, and I don't, I don't judge them for that. Like, I
3: feel like it's probably pretty natural to want to see that because— it's almost something that they, you know, maybe they can't do it, right? Like you watch someone jump off of the cliff. I would never do that. But if I was into that type of thing, I would love to watch someone else do it because I know that I couldn't do it or that I would be afraid to do it. But just watch someone else do it, like, whoa, that would be so cool. I do think there is that type of, uh, that love that you can get from that.
1: I also think that I've I've covered sports like, for example, um, you know, the big wave surfing that, that uh, some people get involved in, and, and back you know in the day where there was, um, you know, multiple surfers trying to win a hundred thousand dollar prize for surfing the biggest wave at Mavericks in California, like there was an element of danger there that kept some people from participating in it, but also that adrenaline does. Um, draw people in it draws viewers in let's go to the phone lines 503-417-7575 max is in portland max welcome to the program
8: hey yeah i was just going to touch on the fact that your example for like the risk in sport yeah is alex Conald and um he actually has a book called the relativity of risk and it really kind of talks about like how comfortable you are in some of those situations yeah, and like my example is like I'm a big snowboarder. I moved out here from Minnesota, where ice fishing is big, to go to Mount Hood, and I feel more comfortable up there than I almost do walking, you know, down on the sidewalk in Portland or any yeah. city, just because there's so much risk involved in life.
1: Let me and ask you. Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. I can I ask you about the ice fishing in particular? Like, so this story's horrible and. People's lives have been lost. Is that a common thing? Do people fall through the ice? Does that happen? Or is that a rarity?
8: No, it, it happens. And, um, like, it, growing up in Minnesota, like, your parents, like, really have to drive it in you, like, how dangerous ice can be. Because, like, I moved out here, and you don't really, like, see a lot of the freeze over. And so you don't experience that. So when you do see it and you, like, the ice is frozen, you go walk out, you'll fall right through if it's not cold enough. So, um, some of it comes from just like like a lack of experience or just not following yeah. the rules, and you know, on the fringe seasons, the the falls or the springs, like yeah, trucks do go through. Um, a lot of the times, it ends up as like a stupid mistake, but uh, sometimes it really does end up as the loss of life. So yeah,
1: you make a good point though about you. You know, you're so you're far more comfortable being in the elements where others may go, hey, that's dangerous. You go, I this is where I grew up. I know the risks. I know what to do yeah correct fascinating
8: So yeah and it's just like kind of even coming down to the activities you do whether it's football or ice fishing or free soloing or snowboarding kind of sometimes with that experience you just get so comfortable that like, even, like, walking off the curb where you could trip or fall or, you know, bonk your head, like, it could end up being safer, even though it looks more dangerous or seems more dangerous.
1: Yeah, I got you on that. I appreciate the phone call. I think, look, I think, you know, I've talked to athletes over the years, whether they be surfers or Olympic athletes that maybe do cross-country skiing or downhill skiing and or motorsports. I've talked to drivers, and they will often say they don't think about the danger because they don't want to focus on the danger. but I think there's some truth in what Max in Portland is saying about you know the guy from free solo, you know that's where he's comfortable. That's, that's like going for a walk. And I think in, if you ever watched that, that film, that documentary, it's interesting to me that with the cameras on and the crews all around, you know, and the morning that he first attempted to go climb uh, El Capitan, he, he kind of he wasn't comfortable with the attention, and then he went out and he took off on his own like an hour before the crew got there the next day because he didn't want anybody around. He kind of wanted to be in his own headspace. I think it's a really interesting study when you look at it. Leave it here. you got the PFT statewide. Back
0: to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Camp Exceptional, the summer camp that the Bald Face Truth Foundation puts on for typical kids and special needs children, is dialed in for July 24th through the 28th at LaSalle High School in Milwaukee. If you're interested in registering your child or your grandchild or your kid and a couple of friends for Camp Exceptional, uh, ages 5 to 15, uh, summer camp runs 9 a.m. to noon daily. And it is out at LaSalle High School. Uh, go ahead and uh, mosey over to BaldFaceTruth.org if you are interested in grabbing one of those spots for the camp uh, and learning more about the BFT Foundation. Appreciate everybody who supports the BFT Foundation. It's why the registration for Camp Exceptional is relatively affordable. Um, I think it's like 120 bucks for the week for the camp. And uh, that is only made possible because so many of you give to the BFT Foundation and make that camp uh, successful. And you get college football players and basketball players who generally are the volunteers that week for the camp, and they're working along with the adaptive PE specialists and our friends at Adidas and other sponsors in making this camp possible every year. I believe this is the 10th annual Camp Exceptional. I want to thank First Call Heating and Cooling, Brad and the team there, and I want to thank Bess over at Gresham Ford and Preston for their support of uh, Camp Exceptional every year, and of course, Brandon with High Caliber Millwrights, who is uh, a superstar in the eyes of those kids every year and helps make that camp possible, and I want to thank our friends at Dutch Bros, uh, who also uh, have uh, jumped in and seen a good thing, and Want to uh, help continue to make camp exceptional a part of the summer for a whole bunch of kids in the Portland metropolitan area. So check it out. You can go to BaldFaceTruth.org if you want more information on that. It frankly is, uh, I feel like it's the best thing that we do every summer as a family. For people who don't know, um, I'm out at the camp all week as is Anna and my brothers and sisters volunteer at the camp. My brother who is an adaptive PE specialist. This camp is really his brainchild. He uh, has, for 25-plus years, worked in creating the curriculum for adaptive special education in California. And he was up visiting one summer, and we got to talking about what he does. And he was telling me that he does the coolest thing. And I said, oh, yeah, what is that? And he says, well, they had started a a uh, mentorship program with athletes at Fresno State University in Central California and kids in the community who needed a helping hand. So you, they, what they did is they paired athletes in football and basketball and track and field and other sports along with a kid who had a challenge. And the kid may have a mobility issue, may have had um, you know, a condition that they were born with. It could be an intellectual disability. It could be um, you know, a, a, a wide array of things, even autism and, and other challenges that are presented to kids today. And they were pairing up these athletes with the children in one-on-one activities. And the kid would, uh, maybe the kid had a goal that they wanted to run a mile and the athlete would uh, then train with the kids for a significant number of weeks and then they held what they called their exceptional games and I said gosh that sounds like a really cool idea I wonder if we could mold that into a summer camp and it got his wheels turning and he came back at me and he said here's what we would need and he said you know we need all this equipment first of all is you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and we'd need a facility. And you would need buy-in from student-athletes at local community colleges or maybe Portland State, the University of Portland, or whatnot. And he started thinking about, you know, all the things you'd need. He kind of presented all the obstacles to me, and I went, you know what, let me talk to some people. And that very first year, a decade ago, we got Clackamas Community College men and women's basketball programs, they raised their hand and said, hey, we'll help out. So did Portland State football. And uh, what was then Coach uh, Bruce Barnum's, I think it was his first season on the job. And and then came uh, University of Portland and Shantae Leggins saying, hey, we'd like to get our men's basketball program involved. And then came Portland State and Jace Coburn. His team just had a dramatic victory the other, the other night over the weekend. Last second shot was phenomenal. It was like this amazing... The craziest wildest thing i've ever seen in a basketball game but guess what portland state men's and women's basketball programs they've been posting victories for several summers i'm here to tell you because they come out to the camp they volunteer to be team leaders they learn the curriculum for the camp um and then you know the facility has moved we originally held it at uh, the camp exceptional out at clackamas community college and then we determined um that that was a little too far out for some of the kids So we uh, then looked for a second home. And i got to tell you, finding a facility for a week in the summer is sometimes a challenge. Well, uh, LaSalle High School in Milwaukee raised their hand. And they not only said, hey, we would love for you to hold our camp here. They also said we would love for you to be involved more with our student athletes and our student body who could maybe help volunteer at the camp. So it has really become a partnership that is really um, inspiring, and it's got so many tentacles that are fun to kind of examine. But I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret that nobody knows. I've never shared this before. The very first year that we're running Camp Exceptional, we didn't have the equipment, okay? We had the facility. We had the volunteers. We didn't really have the equipment. My brother, who was working in California for the school district there in California, happened to have access to all this equipment. And he says, you know, you know, do you think we could get permission from my school district to to borrow the equipment for a week? Of course, we're going to bring it back. And they said yes. But what they didn't know is they didn't know that it was being borrowed and hauled uh, 15 hours in a trailer up to the state of Oregon for the first-ever summer camp. It's the only way we could possibly have done it. So I remember my brother brought this trailer that he pulled all the way from Central California up here to Oregon, and we unloaded the trailer, used the equipment, took inventory of what we needed, though, and then what we did, that subsequent BFT Foundation Radiothon, is we went after sort of buying the equipment and raising the funds to buy You know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, basketballs, hula hoops, cones, nets, gloves, bats, hockey sticks, basket, you know, baskets for basketball. You know, for every possible sport that you could imagine, giant balls that the kids use on obstacle courses, obstacle courses themselves. And with your help and your donations, we no longer had to, should I say borrow, borrow the equipment from that school district in california and in fact we returned their equipment and then we went about you know buying and storing our own equipment for the camp now to this day there is a storage facility that is stacked from floor to ceiling that includes the equipment that you listeners of this show have donated over the years by making donations to the bft foundation you hear all these stories about Russell Wilson's charity or whatever, I just shake my head at it because I know how hard it is and how much volunteer sweat equity it takes and how much buy-in it takes from listeners of this show who have supported Camp Exceptional and the Mission over the years. And the truth is we don't have, like, a fundraising arm. This is it. You're it. I'm it. This is the fundraising. So if you want to give at the end of the year you want to make a tax-deductible donation great place to do it and feel good about it is to go to BaldFaceTruth.org because what you're doing is you're putting frisbees and soccer balls and baseballs and hockey sticks and basketballs into the hands of kids who every summer are gonna have smiles and laughs and they're building memories and making relationships every summer at this camp in addition to that you are funding field trips, and you are taking care of the needs of kids that are in school districts like, you know, in Santiam, which had that terrible fire uh, a couple of years ago. You know, there were kids that lost their backpacks, they lost their books, they lost everything, and the BFT Foundation stepped in there and uh, really felt good that we were able to kind of pivot and help some kids in the state that really needed the help. And i have nothing but you know like i'll look back years from now i'm sure and this radio show is just a distant memory and i will look back and go hey you know what am i most proud of yeah we did a lot of great radio shows we had a lot of fun we uh, tap danced and entertained and we had strong opinions and big guests but damn it you know the real value of this show it's in that summer camp and it's in the power that you have harnessed by giving to the bald face truth foundation BaldFaceTruth.org if you want to get involved. Leave it here. More ahead.
0: Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game.
1: Peter Sampson and The Pulse coming up top of the hour. Make sure you're here for it. Peter will take you from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, the Bald Face Truth, as uh, many of you know, airs from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. You can also get the podcast. Uh, you can get that podcast wherever you find a podcast. Just search for Kanzano or Bald Face Truth or Bald Guy or whatever it is that you search for. You'll find it wherever you can get a podcast. Uh, we've talked about the Super Bowl. For those who don't know, the Chiefs won. I'm good with that. I think they were the better team. They had the better plan. The Eagles dominated the beginning of the game. The Chiefs dominated late in the game. Generally, the team that dominates late wins the game. I thought the Chiefs had the better plan. I thought they had the better player. That said, Jalen Hurts played really well, and I think if Philadelphia had found a way to win the game, he would have been the MVP instead of Patrick Mahomes. He would have been going to Disneyland instead of Patrick Mahomes. Uh, the halftime show, uh, I wasn't as into it as some other people were. Uh, Rihanna uh, revealed the baby bump. Bit of news there. She broke, broke her own news as part of the halftime show and apparently is now the uh, first and only woman to ever perform the halftime show while pregnant. Uh, I think that's interesting. Anna said it went over well in her circle. Steven went for ice cream. Peter went to get a shower. That's uh, just catching you up. Uh, as far as the field and the officiating, I get it. I understand why people make uh, you know parts of the game part of their storyline afterwards. If you're an Eagles fan, you're probably hopping mad about the Chiefs being flagged for that holding call. You're probably hopping mad about the field conditions, not because it generally affected your team more than the other team. Although I did think the Eagles pass rush was the unit that probably suffered the most from the turf being slick. But I also uh, think, you know, look, the truth is both teams played with the same set of officials on the field. They were both subject to the same officiating. They were both subject to the same conditions when it came to the field, when it came to the timing of the game, the warm-up time. Everybody had the same conditions. The bigger factor in this game was just playmaking, and I thought the Chiefs just made more plays than the Eagles did, especially in the second half, and that explains why they won the game. Uh, Would I love to see a rematch of this game? No. I don't think it knocked the, the Pacific time zone ratings out of the park. I haven't seen the numbers yet. I'd be surprised. If this Super Bowl uh, did particularly well in the western part of the United States, I think there was a little bit of apathy, um, sort of similar to what we see with the college football playoff. The Pacific Time Zone doesn't really participate in the college football playoff, hasn't in a number of years since Oregon and Washington, at least, have been uh, participants in that tournament. It felt a little bit like uh, it was just an extension of that with a Philadelphia-based team and a Kansas City-Missouri team in there. And so I think you the know, people in the Midwest and in the eastern part of the United States were probably a little more tuned into it, other than the fact it was a Super Bowl, and we all kind of watched the Super Bowl regardless of who plays in it. Uh, that said, uh, I, I, I wonder about next season. The Chiefs feel like as long as they have Patrick Mahomes, they're going to have a chance to matter. It's going to be really interesting to see if Josh Allen and Buffalo can come back from what was, I thought, a really disappointing finish to their season and also to kind of track what happens with Joe Burrow and the Bengals amid some emerging contenders, let's face it, in the AFC. The Dolphins were kind of an interesting entry. The Jaguars were interesting. The Chargers looked like they could have – the kind of season where um, you know they come back, and when you look at the front runners in the AFC and the NFC, it literally lines up like this: in the AFC, it's Kansas City, it's Buffalo, it's Cincinnati. They're all better than nine to one to win it all. After that, it's the Chargers, the Ravens, the Broncos, the Jaguars. Then come the Raiders and the Jets and the Dolphins. There's your contenders as Vegas sees it in the AFC. In the NFC, a little different. It's Philadelphia and San Francisco. It's the Dallas Cowboys. After that, it's a big drop to the Green Bay Packers and the Rams and the Saints. Like, if I had to pick a team to come from off the pace, meaning 25-1 to or worse, to get to the Super Bowl next year, I'm looking at a team like the Raiders. Could they put it together, although I don't believe in ownership? Uh, could the Jacksonville Jaguars take a big step forward? Seem to have found their quarterback in Trevor Lawrence, and you know, save for a uh, you know a, a disappointing finish where they run into Kansas City in the playoffs, maybe the Jaguars could have rattled around a little bit longer. Uh, beyond that, in the NFC, uh, keep an eye on the Rams. They're thirty-three to one. Could they put it back together? They had such a disappointing season. Peter, you could probably speak to this with injuries and you know, maybe it just was attrition from the Super Bowl. There's kind of a hangover that some teams when they get to the finish line, I'm not gonna say they lose their edge, but they kinda of lose their edge. And the Rams had that feel, but I like the Raiders. Uh I like uh the Jaguars and then keep an eye on the Broncos. Is it possible that Sean Payton could be the answer in the and I'm talking about long shots. It could could be the answer with the Denver Broncos. Do you have a long shot that you love, Steven? Peter, when you look at next season and the Super Bowl in 2024.
3: Yeah, I mean if I'm looking at it, I do like the Broncos. That was my first initial reaction. Um I think Russell Wilson bounces back. I think he was just thrown in a really bad spot um uh, with Nathaniel Hackett as a really bad coach. So I think he's gonna bounce back. The other team uh that I am I'm a little more excited on, I think, than you and it's even a longer shot. The, the only question I have is the AFC is so loaded, but the Pittsburgh Steelers, hmm. uh, Mike Tomlin. 50-1. to 1. Yeah, Mike Tomlin, you know, he's always had a winning record, and Kenny Pickett played really well the last half of the season. I feel like they're going to add some more guys. They're always really good at drafting. I feel like the Steelers are always good, always in it. Uh, so I, I wouldn't put it past them either.
1: Does Aaron Rodgers end up in Vegas? Does he end up – where does he go? New York Jets, where does he go? Seems like – I don't know. I feel like, because I
3: thought Tom Brady was going to Vegas. Now, obviously, he's retiring. I, I feel like this might be a Rogers spot. I feel like Rogers might be heading to Vegas. Like, Vegas needs to add a veteran quarterback. And they have Devontae Adams, who obviously would be okay with Aaron Rodgers going there. Rodgers would be comfortable going there with Devontae Adams. So, I think you're right. I think Vegas is a spot for Aaron Rodgers. And if they get Rodgers, I mean, again, that that AFC West is going to be uh, mighty interesting again. Sean Payton in Denver, and then uh, Rodgers in Las Vegas.
1: Yeah, and here's the thing: Raiders lost a whole bunch of one-score games this last year, and you know, getting Aaron Rodgers, you know, winning some of those games, maybe they should have lost, they become interesting to me. Peter, who do you like?
5: Uh, I mean, it's kind of cliche, but I'm I'm pretty big on the Rams. I, and it's a long shot. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're going to be better. I don't know if they're going to be Super Bowl better. But the idea is if truly, say, Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup, and especially Matthew Stafford all come back from injury, uh, obviously they're not able to plug a lot of gaps in the draft. But, I mean, L.A. always an appeal for free agency. I like him as a long shot.
1: Yeah, I, I think, too, right now they're sitting – the Rams are sitting at 33-1, to 1, you know, for a ex-defending champion. Yeah. So a year removed from their championship. Uh, that's not a bad spot for them at 33-1. Uh, Peter, what do you have coming up top of the hour on The Pulse?
5: Yeah, we've got a lot to get to. Uh, we're going to unpack the GP2 situation. And, uh, yeah, coming off that big win over USC, we've got uh, Beavers guard Jordan Pope on the show. Nice. Coming off the back-to-back uh, freshman player of the week as well.
1: Love that. Love that. Stick around for the Pulse and Peter Sampson. Uh, we're back tomorrow with another great show. If you need a podcast of the show, like I said, you can find it wherever you find your podcast, wherever you get them. Just subscribe. Make sure you don't miss a thing. You can share the interviews. If you're ever stuck somewhere and you need uh, the comfort of this radio show, it'll be there for you. Uh, I appreciate Stephen, uh, Judah, Peter, all of the sea of interns. I appreciate uh, the great uh, – Uh, the great help that we get on this show uh, day in and day out. It takes a lot of people to make this show go, and we're back tomorrow.